You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Welcome to the GGTMC. We are semi-live. Um, a little slow to get going this morning, but uh, we are here. It's Big Willie and the Samurai here with you, and we bring along today our great friend, filmmaker, uh, actor, all-around gent, true gent, uh, Mike Malloy. How you doing, Mike? Hey there. Yeah, the uh, it's been three years i think since i've been on the show and uh made such impression you guys were like we need to have him right back <laughs> <laughs> we, we were banging our fists on our desk cigar in our mouth to make it happen. No, actually uh the uh, my my brand of film commentary was so fiery that time i seem to recall that i melted will's hard drive or something like that uh do you i mean i i'm not even making a joke do you remember that like uh yeah. There was some kind of, I mean, when I was speaking to Will, I remember it was tremendously garbled. Uh, but then when you played back the show, I was the one that came out garbled. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know how that happened. We, we somehow got through it. Yeah, that's that's good uh, recall, Mike. It's certainly better than mine, which doesn't really extend beyond uh, the beginning of this this uh, Skype call. So, Well, I just wondered if that had something to do with uh, the, the giant gap in me being back as you guys worried that I was like some kind of uh, technological jinx or something. <laughs> no, I, I think it came down to the fact that, you know, uh, we, we became intimidated by just, you know, just how, just how glorious it is to speak to one Mike Malloy. Oh. Uh, so, but, you know, we, we, you know, I've heard you on other shows and, uh, you know, I know we, we, we all stay in contact through Facebook and and things like that. It's just one of those things, you know. We just didn't get around to asking, and we got tied up in our oh, Kickstarter we, yeah, stuff. Yeah, we've all been tremendously busy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, which I was going to ask you guys. Uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema is one of two Facebook groups because um, I know you're a podcast. But uh, you, you know, the outside of the podcast, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema to me is the Facebook group. Uh, you are one of two Facebook groups I know that are now like basically becoming a distributor because of final score uh how cool is that uh, yeah yeah we're very excited about it 
Yeah, it's 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 become something that when we started the show, we never certainly could have anticipated, and the friendships we would make and everything else. It's yeah, to to be able to bring about change in the the medium that we both have a passion for like that, without really let I mean let's call a spade a spade, without really doing much heavy lifting beyond kind of uh, you know rallying like minded people. It, it's been yeah really wonderful for sure. Now, with uh, regard, with respect to the Facebook group, um, do you guys ever look at it and see, like, I don't know, mainstream superhero films being discussed or something and think, well, I pretty much know the answer because you guys are very inclusive, polite guys. Uh, but do you ever see, like, you know, mainstream stuff, superhero movies, whatnot being discussed and think, oh, we've gotten so far away from the obscure Billy Blanks films that this group <laughs> was set up to cover? Or do you think, you know, you know it's whatever the, the, the fans want it to be? Uh, I think it's whatever they want it to be. We do see that stuff occasionally, and obviously, you know, you can't escape, you know, those type of films. Uh, you know, they're huge, and some people really want to talk about that stuff. But I, I think that, you know, most people in the group, uh, you know, they're there to talk about the more esoteric and, and you know, just more smaller genre films, uh, especially, you know, your stuff like your Eurocrime and stuff. I mean, one of the... One of the big compliments, I think, for me with the people coming into the group is that they uh, they come in and they want to know, you know, hey, guys, I'm thinking about getting into Eurocrime. Can, can you name me five films uh, to get into that? Or, hey, guys, I'm thinking about getting into Mexican horror films. Can you guys name five films? And and that's really kind of the great stuff. And, you know, I'm just looking through the group this morning right now while we're talking here and stuff. And uh, I think another thing that really works is that we've got these – you know, quote unquote characters in the group themselves. You know, uh, awesome Fabian, uh, people like that who kind of have created this kind of little little niche in the uh, group itself of uh, talking about films and stuff. But I mean, I mean, I'm looking right here. People, somebody posted in an, uh, they watched a Fred Owen Ray film this morning. So I don't think we're in too much danger of uh, the blockbuster taking over the group. <laughs> right, right. No, I wasn't implying that. I just, uh, yeah. Uh, there's, you know, just, I don't know. Uh, and no, I'm not making any kind of implications. There's just all oh, kinds no, of no. places to discuss those things. And I just wondered if uh, you guys just thought it was uh, just a, a t- catch-all, which, you know, it, it, it works out beautifully and organically. It is. Yeah. It's very, very cool. It is and, uh, about that awesome Fabian guy, um, I've seen his post before. I give him an A+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just to piggyback on what uh, Sammy was saying, too, Mike, I, I think that there was a time kind of behind closed doors we thought, man, this thing could get pretty unwieldy, but we've been fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, a group of people that sort of, not to, you know, sound pretentious about it or self-important, but like an inner circle of people that could help us keep things in check. And, you know, we can't always be there. Um, when it's a few hundred people, then it's easier to kind of police and and not to control the conversation, but if things get out of hand or, Things just seem like the the spirit of what we were going for. I think because that's the biggest thing is is the tone and the spirit of how people approach it. Because we like big superhero films too. I mean, they're not my favorite, but I, I'll tell you what, I certainly love them um, because that that thrill of being in the theater uh, with with any film, whether it's uh, regardless of, of genre, you know, or anything, just that that spirit of uh, that that feeling that you get in the cinema, I think, is what initially drew us all to this um but yeah it's it's been at times it's with all these people there's been you know people that you feel like don't get it and we've implemented a system that you know god bless them we have a, some uh some friends of ours that have been able to kind of uh, help us 
not let in uh, too many bad eggs. And if they're there, then we're pretty vigilant about protecting what we got going on. Yeah, the only thing I'm disgruntled about with your group is that, like, all my posts about my neo-Nazi politics just keep getting erased. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. They, uh, we, <laughs> they get, those get uh, squashed pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, those get kiboshed, man. Yeah, we've, 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 we've had that. <laughs> so... Yeah, but it's uh no, it's 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 we're really happy about the group. I mean, you're right. I mean, three years ago when you were on and stuff, the group was still. I don't. Maybe we were at that time maybe four or five hundred members, and now we're two thousand. Two thousand, and, and yeah. uh, you know, we're definitely two thousand, and uh, twenty one hundred maybe. And uh, we're very happy about it. I mean, I'm yeah, job well done. Yeah, we're we're very happy about it because we want people to, you know, celebrate those those films that uh, nobody really talks about, and that's one of the reasons why we started doing this and. And uh, we don't really have any trouble there. I mean, people do. I mean, they post everything from uh, looks like uh, Gung Ho or the Ron Howard film to <laughs> I'm just looking through to you know Abby to to uh, Mannequin for Christ's sake. So yeah, those are definitely uh, lesser films or not lesser in my heart, but <laughs> lesser in uh, the heart of uh, the blockbuster era. But and it, and it comes down to the thing I think that I always like to say really the food analogy, you know, we don't always want to eat veal parm. We don't always want to eat Kobe beef or shrimp Variety is the spice of life, right? There's times I want to watch expendables too. And there's times, uh, I don't, there's times I want to watch well, Abby, right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you just kind of, whatever you want that, that evening is, you know, going to keep you going. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, well, we know you've been up to a few things. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about them all, but, I mean, we could, you could maybe, uh, you got any, uh, can you talk any more about the uh, the Django thing? Uh, Django Lives is represented by uh, Resolution, which is one of, like, the big seven agencies out in Hollywood, and it goes to Cannes, seeking the rest of its production financing uh, this month, and uh, Eurocrime has a North American distribution deal, finally, but enough yes. about me. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. We're very excited about the uh, Eurocrime thing. Yeah, I think somebody was telling us about that. Uh, oh, it was Dave, right? Was it Dave? Davey last I week. So. I think so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> very excited. So. Very excited. And of course, I'm. You know, I'm excited. It was my number one film a couple of years ago, and I still can't wait to watch it again. Well, once it gets the official release, then I'll be able to put it on my list. <laughs> this will be the year it uh, it does that. I got yeah. I got offers immediately on it when it's hit the festival circuit, but uh, it took two years to get a non-insulting offer. Uh, it's just um, I don't know if it's just the state of the industry or the disconnect with genre people in Eurocrime because uh, you know it's just I don't. It's not like horror where it sells itself. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I'll tell you though, Mike. You know, it's obviously thrilling for us to see that too, and bravo to you for giving your integrity uh, about you. You know, at a time like that, when it would have been easy, easy thing to do would have been to to, to cash in uh, with a deal like that. But um, you know, what are your thoughts on on the progression of Eurocrime uh, on home video or home uh, on formats that allow us to see it now much more access- in a much more accessible fashion? It's pretty thrilling. Yeah, it's uh, it's great that Raro and others are continuing to do this because uh, I guess the weird thing is is that as mainstream physical home media just goes into the toilet, uh, it's the niche stuff that's going to persist because the niche stuff is bought by collectors and collectors are the only people buying DVD and blue anymore. So uh, yeah, yeah. I never thought I'd see Milano Ravente on blue, and here we are with a, with a blue. I mean that same print. Seem to be going around for like the, it's forever. I think it was a TV rip. Everyone had 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 uh, 
And it's no, a sorry. weird it's a weird feeling doing intros for these discs now. Like uh, Milano Rovente, I uh, did the intro for the disc, which is the English language dub, and I've never seen the English language dub. I hadn't at the time that I did the the uh, the intro. I'd only seen that. Uh, I think it was some kind of obscure semi authorized release by a company called Dago Red. Oh, okay, I don't know if I'd seen that release. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's coming around for sure. It definitely is. It was great to see you on the uh, we did the uh, meet him and die recently. It was uh, great to see you on there and uh, really like surprise. You were on the show before you were on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> talking about uh, you know great films in that intro. I love that the Mitchell moment. Still my favorite moment I've had on DVD in some time. <laughs> oh, but anyway, uh, yeah. But you're right. I, I, I never would have foreseen that. Uh, the DVD and Blu-ray would have become this niche thing. It's either, it really is either the big blockbuster release or it's uh, collectors looking for the uh, the small films. Of course, I never first, I never saw the day when I uh, we talk about this every time we cover one, but I never saw ever thought there'd be outside of maybe a handful, but uh, Euro crime or Italian films on Blu-ray of you know those type of genres on Blu-ray to begin with. So I'm just very happy that somebody's putting that stuff out. Well, yeah, and he, the, sorry, I my kind of. I kind of wish that, uh, I don't know, I know that there are technophiles and audiophiles and home video files and stuff. I wish that some of these uh, companies would realize I'd rather just own some of these films on manufactured DVD instead of not having them at all. And yeah. I know a lot of companies, because I'm dealing with some of them now, a lot of companies say, yeah, we got to okay master on this, but uh, you know, we know the fans are just going to boo us if we put it out in this condition and we just can't justify you know, uh, going to the, the lab in Italy and, you know, going back to the negative or anything like that. Uh, I'm just not one of those guys. I don't need something to be 100% pristine. Um, but, you know, I know that maybe I'm in the minority on that. Well, I think, again, with collectors, I, I, I would say that all of us are with you in that if we can get a film released in any format provided you know uh, that it's it's done to the best of its ability i mean there's there's ways to pump up that release you know some supplemental stuff and you know uh, well written liner notes and it, i think yeah a lot of us just want to see care put into it um and i i, I don't i'm not I, I listen ideally if the master's there to put a, put a you know beautiful transfer great but if not then you know just yeah. to do what someone can to have that film in a legitimate format to have a commentary track or something uh, or you know a little uh, featurette on you know Milano Ravente or you know a number of films is good enough uh, for me and I think in this age too it's easier to spread the word about the justification for why a transfer looks the way it does you know is is easier to kind of spread the word around the campfire at this point too which is right. which is good but yeah you're right I, I think unfortunately some people we live in an age where everything has to be the best and has to be now. And yeah, it's kind of. I often wonder. You know, I was just looking at Blu-ray.com. I often wonder if, if uh, some of these companies just, you know, they're worried about the review, obviously, and and stuff like that. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't understand either. I'm with you, Mike. I'm with Man Will. I mean, I don't, I don't need it to be on Blu-ray. I don't, you know, if it's fine if it was released on DVD, and you know, not even. Uh, I would even, you know, I just want it out there. I want everybody to be able to access it easily. Uh, outside of the other ways people access material and yeah. uh you know to have it on my shelf and all that good stuff but uh you know I, I i feel like there is these companies i do feel like sometimes they you know they they hesitate of course you know i don't know the cost i don't know the business that well and stuff we're we're just now getting into that stuff so i guess we'll we'll understand what that's like soon right right <laughs> 
Yeah, because we're not doing blue. We're doing DVD, so. Hmm. But did, either way, did Milano Rovente get a blue release, or was it just DVD? Both. I thought it was blue, right? Yeah, okay, I thought it was both. Okay. Was it a dual format, or do you buy one or the other? Do you know, Mike? Uh, yeah, you had your choice of buying okay, DVD good, or good, blue. Good. Yeah. yeah. All right. So all that's out of the way. And... Uh, we got all that yeah, going. yeah, we we caught up uh, three years worth in uh, in twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> twenty minutes. <laughs> I am very excited, though. I have to say about the uh, the Django uh, scenario. Uh, I remember you started kind of talking about that a little bit before it kind of you know became official and stuff. And it's just real exciting. And I, I know it's got to be a uh, a childhood, uh, or maybe maybe not childhood, but definitely a uh, uh, teenagehood. Maybe <laughs> dream of yours come true to be able to uh, to uh, work on a project like that. So yeah, it, it's amazing. We uh, started with a screenplay and a letter of interest. Well, we started with a my Eric co-writer and I, Eric Zaldivar. We started with a story idea and a letter of interest from Franco because he liked our story idea, and uh, we turned it into a screenplay and just wanted to see how far we could get with it. And um, yeah, now it's uh, we got the. It took us nine months to get the uh, sequel rights from the Italians. Uh, Italians is a totally different way of doing business. Uh, you, you know, just kind of laid back and laconic. Even when you're waving money in front of their face and saying, we have money to pay you, please get back to us. Uh, that still doesn't guarantee a uh, response. But, um, yeah, no, you know, now it's, now it's got uh, real representation. People are packaging it with talent and stuff and taking it to Cannes. So it's, it's a nice thing. And uh, Eric, he was the uh, wasn't he the uh, filmmaker that did the Scarlet Worm? The... Uh, Eric and I were both uh, associate producers and cast members on that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. Which I still I still champion that film to a lot of my friends. I'll, I'll get, let them borrow the disc every now and then and stuff. Cause I I'm very think... proud of it because it's uh, what I like in so many like Kid, which we're discussing today. It's a noble failure to me, and uh, you know Scarlet Worm is made for seventy five hundred dollars. But my favorite review of it of all time was. Uh, you know, not somebody gushing over it, but somebody who said, you know, this is really cheap, but there's something here. Uh, that's my favorite review that I've ever read on it. $7,500, wow. That is, that, is, that is pretty, I mean, I've seen the film, so um, that's pretty impressive, I have to say. Well, when you get six guys who are on the same wavelength, sometimes it can uh, move mountains. So. Yep. That's the truth. It is the truth. All right, so uh, we'll get into some other things. Uh, Will, have you been watching anything lately? Uh, Mike, you want to talk about anything you may have been watching lately? Well, yeah, I don't watch all that much anymore, really. Um, the thing that comes to mind is I've had a bunch of these public domain uh, Charles Bronson TV episodes edited into features for a while, and I've never even really known uh, what they all are. There's been Meanest Men in the West, Bull of the West, Hot Lead. I've known that these are all old 60s TV shows with Bronson in them that have been edited into a feature after he became a superstar. Um, never really gotten around to watching them until I saw Hot Lead, which is also one of the other titles. I think the Bull of the West and Hot Lead are the same thing. And it was a melodrama, two episodes of The Virginian edited together. But man, it was one of those things where everybody in the cast was somebody. You yeah. had Bronson, you had Lee J. Cobb, you had Clue Gulliger, you had Doug McClure, you had DeForest Kelly. George Kennedy, Brian Keith, Ben Johnson. It was just like staggering, the cast on that. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about those old uh, kind of like Western uh, TV shows uh, that used to be on. Is And I'll catch one every now and then, like the McQueen show or 
or any of those old westerns that were on TV because I used to watch those growing up and stuff. And that's where I think I kind of uh, got my taste for those uh, those great character actor faces because uh, you know I knew I didn't I knew who those guys were before I knew who they were, so to speak. And uh, it was great to it's always great to kind of see them and stuff. I don't get as much time to watch that stuff as I used to, but man, I, yeah, no, it's it's cool also because so many of those guys went on to like leading man careers of themselves. So the chance to see like I don't know Warren Oates and Robert Blake playing two gang members together. Uh, did I say Warren Oates? Yeah, Warren yeah. Oates and Robert Blake playing two gang members together. It, there's even a couple of episodes where uh, Eastwood and Van Cleef, uh, episodes of Rawhide where Eastwood and Van Cleef are together prior to for a few dollars more. Yep. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that stuff is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is. All right. Well, Large William. We got. And no, I, I should say that. I'm glad you brought up Warren Oates. A lot of people don't know Warren Oates was uh, in, in uh, some of the TV Western stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's one of the first places he started making a stamp. Oh yeah, yeah. With that great smile, a little gap in the tooth there. <laughs> Large William, what have you been watching lately, buddy? Uh, I had a pretty good week. I've been actually kind of—it's weird as as I was talking to you on the phone the other night, Sammy, talking about getting a little bit of time back as far as kids getting a bit older. You know, they want to be left to their own devices a bit sometimes with their Lego and whatnot. So I've uh, been watching a little more sports this weekend. You know, NBA playoffs, a lot of game sevens, uh, watching some hockey playoffs. So that's been good, but. I still had a great week film-wise. Um, really mixed bag, which is always, you know, variety is the spice of life, as we've already said once on this episode. Uh, I did a Eurocrime film, pretty deep cut, uh, directed by Piero Levi, which I'd never even heard of, and I stumbled onto it. Um, and I can't find the English title now, for the life of me. Uh, it's Dove Valano e Corvi d'Argento, which um, it takes place in the Sardinian Mountains, it's uh, it's 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 kind of a slower mover. It's it seems like something more in uh, Mike. Have you have you seen this one? Well, that that title doesn't ring. Yeah, that's why I was looking for the English title. It's it's basically uh, got Flavio Bucci in it, Jenny Tamburi. You know, uh, a lot of who Western. Who made that one? Uh, Piero Levi. Piero Levi. And uh, it's it's about a guy who returns home from the city back to the the countryside and. Um, his family, you know, farming community. His family. There's a murder, um, and it's if he's going to, you know, get revenge, basically, or he's he's not going to. And it just looks more at, at the the way of life and the the state of mind of Sardinians. Um, yeah, basically, and what he's going to do at those times. I think the only Sardinian Euro crime I've ever seen is Cane Mozza with um, Antonio Sabato. So I, I don't yeah, think I've not seen that. that. Yeah, this one was good. I mean, it's a slower mover, but it's a beautiful countryside. And I think the fact that it's off the beaten path gives it a little more value, too, for me. You know, because I'm always looking for new ones. The problem is, you know, it's harder and harder to find ones that really knock your socks off as, as I go along here. Uh, you know, been in the, digging in for, I don't know how many years now, but uh, but it was good. I mean, worth a look, uh, to be sure. So, uh, yeah, if uh, either guys you want that, I can certainly throw it your way. It's It's an interesting little film. Um, then I watched Ghostbusters 2 with did I mention Ghostbusters 1 yet? No, I don't think I did actually no. my kids are getting a little bit older now so it gets into that thing of letting them watch uh, stuff that's um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, I just, uh, it's, it's age appropriate I didn't think necessarily Ghostbusters would be but I didn't think it was going to be too racy other than turning their heads at the ghost blowjob scene um, which is kind of you know I don't even know how to begin explaining that stuff I know Rich I, I, thankfully I've remembered 
to keep my eyes open for that scene because another uh, friend of the group, Rich Flanagan, watched it with his daughter and forgot about that scene. So I was looking for the the uh, Apple TV remote at that point. So it 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 went really well. Uh, they loved it and they wanted to watch Ghostbusters two the next night. So we did that and and I got to tell you, you know, truth be told, I like the Ghostbusters films, especially the first one, but. They don't hold as, as – and it was my first VHS tape we ever owned as a family. But um, it's not as beloved to me as it is to a lot of people. Like I think, I think it's a good 80s film or you know, good kind of comedy – I don't know if you want to call it a horror film. But it, it's a good film, but I, I, it doesn't hold as near and dear a place to my heart as it does a lot of people. Um, and I Ghostbusters 2 falls flatter. I don't think it works as quite as well. I know it's still a decent film. It's entertaining, but – it's uh, it feels very much like a sequel. Um, then I did uh, the big combo. Good friend of ours, Scott of Mary with Clickers fame, had was kind enough. He had an extra copy of the disc, and uh, I jumped into this one. And this is a great little noir. It's uh, fantastically shot. Um, Richard Conti is in it, and he he very 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 good in the film. I mean, he owns Cornell Wilde's great too, but. It's it's Conti's film, and he it, it really feels like a role you know ten well, probably twenty years later you know Silva would have done in some of these Eurocrime films, and uh, I so quite like. So you got in a lot of Van Cleef this week. I did. I did an unintentional Van Cleef double. Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> um, then I did Woman by the Lake, which was a, a Japanese film. It feels very much like uh, Snake of June, which I want to say is a Shinya Sukimoto film. I could be wrong, but it's early in the morning. Um, it's about a, uh, basically a woman is having an affair, and the man she's having an affair takes some photos, and the negatives get lost, which is, see, this isn't something we'd see anymore on film. They'd have to lose a hard drive or a jump drive or something. Um, <laughs> the negatives get lost, and she gets blackmailed um, to do some things. And it's it's a, certainly a really, really good film. And I think it's the most European of any Japanese film I've seen. It feels almost like Antonioni. Um, which, you know, mileage varies with people, but I, I, I like Antonioni, so... Uh, yeah, and then I did uh, Justice League New Frontier, which is um, really, really great. I think Darwin Cook, Sammy, is that right? Darwin Cook? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cook. So it, it looks at, you know, the 50s and uh, basically the assembling of the Justice League and stuff. Watch it with my boys. Really dug it. It was, it was fantastic. Um then I did uh, stay in the comic book vein, uh, not with my kids, and I did the Wolverine, which uh, came out, I guess, uh, last year. A friend of mine lent me the blue. Um, this one was okay. It's a bit anonymous. It's a beautiful film. It looks nice, uh, but it does feel rather anonymous. Um, just a couple more. I did Cinema Paradiso for the first time. It's a very good film. It's hearts in the right place, but I feel like it is to cinema what Field of Dreams is to baseball. It's a very sentimental film. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, you know, I'm a sentimental guy, but I feel like even still, it's it's a very good film, but I don't think it's it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. Both of those are very sentimental. Not quite as sentimental as the ghost blowjob, but very much. No. <laughs> you never forget your first ghost blowjob. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, then I did the ESPN 30 for 30 on the my favorite basketball team of all time, the Detroit Pistons Bad Boys of the 80s. And uh, this one was really good. I mean, this is the documentary. We always talk about some sports documentaries kind of transcending the subject of sports. But this one very much is if you're a sports fan, you'll you'll appreciate it. I don't think it's going to have as much universal appeal to people that aren't into sports. And then I finished my week with 
uh, another deep cut, uh, one I'd never heard of until I got it, and it was Execution in Autumn, which was a Taiwanese-made film by a mainland Chinese filmmaker. It's a period piece that deals with um, a man who's been uh, he's going to be executed in the autumn, hence the title. And basically the way that works, that's when they do their, their executions. He murdered three people, and his grandmother tries to get him off, and it looks at a lot of uh, – it's a kind of a moral fable, but – his grandmother, really like, his grandmother tries to get him off. Are we still talking about the ghost blowjob? Oh, yeah. I see. That was a terrible choice of words on my part. Oh. Uh, his, his grandmother uh, really he comes from an upper, upper middle class family, and she tries to uh, get him released from prison. And uh, so some things happen, some realizations, not so much twists and turns, but in terms of life and, and uh, whatnot. It was, it was an excellent film. I really, really was impressed. It, it almost feels like if Douglas Sirk was Chinese. Um, doing a family melodrama that is more has more at play than just sort of uh, domestic uh, interests. So. And both of your kids loved it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, Dad, I can't wait. we got to watch Execution in Autumn again. Yeah, well, it's funny because Wu-Tang Clan just put out a song called Execution in Autumn, I guess, uh, in 2013. So I, I have to imagine that Rizzo had seen it. So Yeah, more than likely. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to title songs off obscure... Asian films, <laughs> still. Um, okay, well, that, that's a that's definitely a good week. It's a lot more than I watched. I, I meant to mention uh, last week, but I forgot to because I forgot to write it down that I'd actually seen the Lone Ranger. I'd actually saw that. Um, oh man, yeah, uh, very very you know very mediocre. Uh, I liked some of the. I was hoping that some of the Gore Verbinski spaghetti western stuff out of Rango. Would come into play in Lone Ranger, and some of it does. I mean, obviously, there, there are some beautiful nods. Like, there's some shots that he homages, like from Searchers and other films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he slips in there. Quite there's moments. There's moments, and then, of course, then there's also you know the kid moments, and it's a really, it's really a film that's. I guess the best way I can describe this film is it's a film that's very confused about what it wants to be. Yeah, uh, it's it's not very good. It's and the crow on the head doesn't help things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of crow on the head in this film. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very mediocre. Uh, it looks great, but of course, you know, it costs a lot of money, and I expect it should look great. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really, too bad. Really a shame. I think a missed opportunity. I love the Lone Ranger character. It's a favorite character of mine growing up. Uh, this feels like exactly what I thought it would feel like: uh, pirates, pirates of the Lone Ranger, and yes. and all that stuff. Overspent, uh, you know, looking for the blockbuster. It's really the worst kind of blockbuster in a lot of ways. It is. So, and I think it, its budget is one of its its weaknesses because yeah, yeah, if they had have made this a thirty or forty million dollar film, it could have been leaner and and could have been the Lone Ranger. I think a lot of us would have liked to have seen, and there wouldn't have hey, been as much. Didn't, risk. didn't I just say I made a western for seventy five hundred dollars? Precisely. Precisely. Take a lesson from me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, man. I don't know what that one, that one cost. Like what two hundred fifty million? Yeah, two hundred and fifty million. <laughs> Imagine just craft services on that alone. Man. It's waste. There's so much waste in Hollywood. Man. Come on, guys. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and you know, another thing I didn't like about the film is uh, I didn't like William Fickner in the bad guy role. Uh, not that I don't like him. I do like Fickner, but I, I, I don't uh, – the, the bad guy in the film, the uh, – I can't remember the name of the character. Um, but uh, he, he, even though he had a little bit of a look, I never really felt like he was a heavy. Like I just oh. felt like he was – kind of there and uh i think when you have the lone ranger a, a stoic hero i think you got to have a a bad guy quote unquote to uh to combat that and i just never really felt like that i always felt like it was 
basically him versus trains the whole film. Well, it was him versus, him versus CGI and trains, and your hero is never going to be as good, or the villain has to be as good as the hero, yeah. right? Yeah. If not, that. For me, the villain almost has to be better in some ways. Well, he does have to be better, yeah, for you to really vanquish that dragon. So, But maybe that's my love of the spaghetti western, so I don't know. Uh, there was some, like I said, there were some aspects of the spaghetti in there, the gore. Obviously, you know, he's seen that stuff, but uh, yeah. What a shame. It is always nice to see Monument Valley, though. Always yeah. a nice reminder. Uh, the only other film I watched was Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm basically just catching up on all my blockbusters. Uh, yeah, I don't really, you know, and I'm not watching uh, the, the hard-to-find films. I'm watching the blockbusters, it seems. So, But I did like Star Trek Into Darkness. Not as much as the first one, but it was all right. It was all right, as they say down here. And uh, uh, it, whatever. I mean... It was gorgeous, too. It was a lot better than uh, Lone Ranger. I can say that. And, and in a lot of ways, a lot better for Western than Lone Ranger. <laughs> so I can say that as well. I mean, it definitely had the bad guy to match the good guy. Uh, the bad guy is more interesting than the good guy in Star Trek Into Darkness. So there you go. Yeah, I thought because uh, I, I uh, borrowed a whole bunch of Blu-rays from my uh, fiance's pop uh, thinking, you know, uh, Boy, I found Star Trek Into Darkness, which I call Star Trek Into Garbage. Uh, I found it, uh, man, it was just so irritating. And I think that if it hadn't been called a Star Trek film, it wouldn't have um, rubbed me the wrong way. But I don't. Star Trek is supposed to have some thoughtfulness to it and stuff, and that was yeah. just a noisy slam banger. Oh, that, uh, that you're definitely right about that. I mean, it's not if you're a Star Trek, if you're a tricky, so to speak. Yeah, I can see why some people did not like it. I really can because it it just feels like a a big, uh, a big silly popcorn movie with a Star Trek label on it. Like this, it very much feels that way, and so yeah. I didn't really love it. But at the same time, it was better than uh, some of the stuff I've seen recently. But I can understand that Star Trek into garbage. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sammy, did you have a mint julep yesterday watching California Chrome trot across the finish line? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, <laughs> I did not. No, I was. I was, play, I was playing a game called Doggy Do at the time while that happens where you stick a, uh, a like a Play-Doh type supplement into a fake plastic dog and you roll a dice and then you pump the leash uh, how many times you roll the dice and every time you pump the leash the dog farts and uh, eventually uh, this Play-Doh type material comes out of its asshole and uh, you know. My son laughed a couple of times, but I laughed even more. So, you know, it goes to show you, you know, the heart stays young. I'm 41, and uh, I still uh, love a good fart joke. There you go. <laughs> That's Did either of you guys have the plastic goat as a kid that you would crank its tail and it would eat, uh, you know, because goats are known for eating garbage, including Star Trek in the garbage? <laughs> yeah. um, me, me and my Blu-ray, so to speak. <laughs> Do you do, do either you remember this? I think I was the only no. kid on my block that had one. Of I, had, I had one. I had one. Oh, yeah? I did, not. I did. I had one. I totally remember that. Because I remember thinking, do goats really eat everything? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, of course, you know, in movies and stuff, they, they, they or well, a lot more back in when, I guess, me and you were children, Mike, the, that uh, you would see that a lot more. Goats always getting in the house and eating everything in the house. And there's a lot of goats getting into houses when we were kids. <laughs> I don't know how that happens so often in movies, but, but uh, yeah, I remember that thing. I do. Yeah. 
But it was funny. My it's wife crazy. was really. I'm ma- gonna have to look that toy up. I've never my, heard of it. My wife was. It making- was, it was we weren't so crass and crude back then because it uh, instead of it really fully digesting and it coming out the other end, it just like went into like the goat had saddlebags or something, and yeah, you know yeah. whatever you uh, ate, uh, it you know you collected it out of the saddlebag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't cl- scoop it out of its asshole, I guess. No, you did not. No, <laughs> did not. No. This uh, this this era of uh, being a child, this era that my son's in right now, there's three going on four. This kind of fascination with pooping and burping and and snot and all sorts of yeah because yeah. we get this this stuff that, that makes the uh, the uh, fecal material for this uh, this toy it looks like snot it, it's very greenish and stuff so this dog's had a lot of sugar but this uh, <laughs> what I ended up doing is my wife makes fun of me all the time because I'm 41 like I said and he's with only three and I'm sitting there acting like I'm sneezing and I got a handful of snot and and all this stuff and I'm just cackling and he's cackling. <laughs> Did you do it to your wife? Oh yeah, with oh, the old yeah. sneeze trick, and she oh, rolls yeah. her eyes at the oh, yeah. at the dad jokes that yeah. we're yeah. Yeah. falling prey to. She's like, I really don't want him to grow up and be gross. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have had a boy. So. Yeah, it's true. My kids will not. My one, my three year old, I cannot get him to stop saying poop. <laughs> yeah. no. I mean, nothing works. No, no, Just no, everything. So. It's all poop all all day. <laughs> poop. Well, he'll he'll wedge the word poop into any any sentence or if we if I. Any film, you know, anything, anytime he can f- squeeze the word, shoehorn the word poop, you know, he would make uh, anything. He would just squeeze it in, man. Poop, 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 poop. I mean, you know, it's, it's a phase. That's what I tell my wife. It's a phase. I mean, I went through it, and obviously I never got grew it because I'm still doing it at 41. <laughs> so I keep telling her it's a phase, but here I am at 41 acting like a total child. But, you know, what do you do? Eh, you know, it's, it's worth it to hear my son laugh is what I always tell my wife, you know, to hear him cackle and to watch him fall on the floor and hold his stomach and he can't stop laughing, he can't figure out why he can't stop laughing, is uh, is a priceless moment. So uh. <laughs> That's all well and good until he's in the job interview continuously <laughs> saying poop and uh, you know, eventually starving to death. Come on, guys, take some responsibility for your kids here. That's right. He's going to be he's going to be in the job interview shaking his prospective boss's hand with the uh, the snot-like substance in his hand yeah oh yeah he's gonna uh, give him the old uh the wet hand like uh they did michael rooker in mall rats you know that's right the old dirty hand with the uh, yogurt pretzels yeah uh but no he uh yeah it was <laughs> yeah okay well anyway that's what i spent uh, that's why the derby was on uh in the background that was i was playing with fake poop i would rather do that than watch the derby probably too yeah yeah so that was what i was doing so yeah, I can't believe Mike brought the goat thing. I'm going to have to look that up. I can't remember what that was called, but I had that thing, yeah. And yeah, they didn't do a whole lot of the poop stuff when we were growing up. I guess they thought it was too immature. <laughs> they did have, when I was growing up, because I'm a little bit younger than you guys. I'm 34. I'll be 35 this year. They did have a lot of candy that revolved around that. Like, you could buy candy called, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, gummy candy that was supposed to be snot or vomit or something. And <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, kids and their fixations. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, my parents are pretty mortified by the garbage pail kids. Uh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think you know they ever bought it for us, and uh, I don't think I ever bought them for myself. But you know, you get stuff in the schoolyard trade and whatnot, and yeah, they were pretty mortified. <laughs> yeah. Well, p- piece of trivia: Garbage Pail Kids was my oldest son, my five-year-old son William's first live-action film ever in his life. He uh, he he pulled it off the shelf, and he wanted to watch. As he called it, the Garbage Boys. So uh, neither one yeah. of your neither one of your kids are ever going to get jobs. Uh, this is terrible. It's true. Uh, it's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, know. I have a feeling. Arm, armpit flatulation during their uh, <laughs> uh, 
a high-powered job interview. This they're going right. to be uh, taking over this show. So I hope, yeah. they, I hope they have some kind all, of financial thing to fall back on. All this kingdom will be theirs. <laughs> yeah. Be a lot more fart sound effects on the show at that point. Yeah, sound like some other shows. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully uh, not. All right, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we didn't even talk about what we've been covering. Uh, we we kind of talked about it a little bit, but uh, we're covering uh, Mike uh, program the show. We're covering 1977's, I think 77, The yep. uh, Perfect Killer, uh, directed by, let me see if I can get this right, Mario Cic- is it Ciciliano. Siciliano, Siciliano, yeah. Siciliano. Yeah. And uh, who's made a few interesting films, it should be said. And then uh, Kid from 1990. Uh, directed by John Mark Robinson, who uh, didn't make a lot of films, but he was an actor as well. So I think he was involved with The Six Million Dollar Man, so he's a man near and dear to my heart. And The Facts of Life, so he's a man near and dear to my heart. Yeah. That's kind of like both sides of the coin for me. It's like, yeah, and then it's like, oh, I'm going to go in the bedroom by myself for a while. Yeah, uh, well, the, guy, the guy from that credits list who really exploded was uh, the DP, Robert Yeoman, who went on oh, to yeah. be Sanderson's DP and uh, now attached to Django Lives even. Ooh, oh, nice. Nice. Didn't know that. Sweet. All right, so we'll talk more about that in just a few. But uh, which one you guys want to talk about first? You guys got a preference? Well, it doesn't matter to me. Mike, what do you? Uh, anything you want to get into first out of those? Uh, my, I'm looking at my notes, and I have kid on top. Cool. <laughs> All right, so we'll uh, we'll be right back to talk about kid from 1990. Swear you'll listen to the good, the bad, and the odd. The good. He has the cruelty of Jack Nicholson's Joker, the wit of Mark Hamill's Joker, yeah. and the laugh of Cesar Romero. <laughs> the bad. He's bald, he's got a cat, he lives in a volcano. What else you need? And the odd. I've that seen bits great. of it, it's really stupid. Swear to me. Just a couple of guys talking about movies. You can find us on www. The good, the bad, and the odd.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. Gobbles the goat and everybody else. We are back on the air on the hard drives. Mike, you haven't caused any technical issues so far. So. Oh, bravo, bravo. <laughs> Give me time. <laughs> we should be good. There was a moment when you were talking about Star Trek into garbage, though, where you disappeared for a second, but it didn't really hurt the the uh, content, so I'll just leave it be. And I didn't want to say anything at the time because I thought it might throw you off your game a little bit, so... <laughs> All right, so Kid, 1990. Uh, Mike uh, definitely wanted to pick films. He, he, we, me and him were chatting uh, behind the scenes. Uh, that uh, <laughs> every time I hear that, man, I Charles think, Bronson, man. Yeah, I hear that whistle, and I think to myself, man, I got to get my turtleneck and my my sailor cap. Where's my Old Spice commercial? You know. You know, uh, do you guys remember those Old Spice commercials? Those of ones course. where the sailors they still would, use that uh, little jingle at the end of their commercials. Yeah. Guys would get off the boat, and that was before the uh, the AIDS crisis with sailors, right? So <laughs> they would get off the boat, and you know, of course that was probably before I realized that sailors got off boats and went to every local hole in the wall or whatever. Anyway, I'm being crass. Uh, the, uh, Mike wanted to pick films that were basically out of print or hard to find, and uh, I remember this film uh, on the DVD on the on the DVD shelves. Jesus, on the video shelves, I remember that cover, that kind of uh, painted against white kind of cover they have uh but i never watched this film and i think that was because after uh and i was talking to will about this after soul man i didn't really watch very many c thomas howell films uh <laughs> so uh not not on purpose it just like i felt like maybe he had uh, peaked at the soul man uh as sad as that sounds 
Um, but, you know, uh, oddly, if you look at C. Thomas Howell's career, he has had uh, one of the most uh, productive careers of any actor of his generation, uh, easily. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's now close to almost 200 credits. Uh, of course, he's getting into Lee Van Cleef and uh, John Ireland territory. Yeah, yeah. His quality control is a little lacking, but uh, he definitely uh, works plenty. So... It's interesting uh, picking this film because I, like I said, I've never seen it and stuff. So uh, let me synopsize here. Uh, a young man returns to a small town where his parents were murdered when he was a boy. Jeez. Uh, he's there for revenge. Let's just leave it like that. Um, and uh, this has got an interesting cast, to say the least. You got uh, C. Thomas Howell. You got Brian Austin Green, who uh, oddly looked like uh, Will in one of his Throwback Thursday photos. Uh, playing a character named Metal Louie, which is a, yeah, a nickname. Metal mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his metal mileage, his metal cred is lacking. Uh, well, he, the second he walked in with that, that haircut, you know, you can put lipstick on a pig, man. You put leather studs on a pig. Oh, but didn't you see? He had an electric guitar earring. He must be metal. Yeah. yeah. He also had a V.C. Rich Warlock guitar. When he was playing uh, guitar, which is uh, back in the day, that that made you metal, quote unquote. Yeah, no <laughs> uh, you got Arlie Ermey. You got uh, Michael Bowen playing a douchebag. Go figure. Uh, Michael Cavanaugh, who uh, that was the tennis ball character. But yeah, I love Michael Cavanaugh, and I'm glad. Uh, I think Mike mentioned uh, Clint Eastwood regular, but he's been in, he's he's a great character actor. And uh, Dale Dye, who didn't get a lot of uh, roles, but was basically a behind the scenes guy quite a bit. Well, it's just fascinating, and I uh, got a chance to email a couple of questions to Dale. Um, you know, Arlie Ermey and Dale Dye are the two guys who parlayed military advisor careers into, you know, screen careers as actors, right. first in military roles and then even in non-military roles. So the fact that the two guys are in this movie together, I thought had to be more than coincidence. I thought one guy maybe got the other one cast or something. Dale told me, no, it's not so at all. It just, you know just so happened that this was the first time they worked on screen together that's incredible yeah because i i looked into that and i yeah i marine i mean he was the real deal and we all know ermy's backstory so it's serendipity i never even i'm looking through Dale Dye's uh, filmography right now i didn't realize he was in so much stuff i mean he was just the radio announcer in august osage county just recently i'm Man. trying to remember the uh, the radio announcer but that would have just been voice work then right maybe He's got a great so voice. I, I've seen August Osage County. I don't recall there being really a role on screen for a radio announcer. Well, Dale Dye's got this kind of face where he kind of blends in uh, because yeah. he's in a lot of films. And uh, I went through a phase where I was looking for him in certain movies because I would go through his filmography and be like, oh, he's in Starship Troopers. Oh, he's in Natural Born Killers. I'm going to go through and see if I can find Dale Dye. And he, he isn't easy to find all the time. He's kind of around because I, th- I think he works, like I said, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And, and then, you know, he kind of gets in front of the camera. Every now and then, but yeah, he's worked with everybody from uh, Steven Spielberg to Toby Hooper to uh, Paul Verhoeven. Says De Palma as well, Oliver Stone. Yeah, those are some big names. Yeah, he's worked sure. with everybody, and of course, uh, everybody who doesn't, or well, everybody or anybody who doesn't know who Arlie Army is. I mean, he has the one pivotal role, but Arlie Army is is Arlie Army. There's no doubt about that. Well, in this film, he uh, is a kind of a crooked. Iron-fisted sheriff. He's basically playing. He basically played the same character years later in the horror context in those um, uh, chainsaw reboots. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. yep. I've always thought Arlie Army plays a bad, a great uh, kind of like sleazy bad guy because he's just got those crazy eyes. Menace. He's got, he's got, he brings, he's got weight and presence and... You know, it's uh, he, he's funny because he can do both sides of the coin really, really well. Yeah, he's got those Eugene Levy eyebrows. Sure does. <laughs> those caterpillars. It, of course, the you know what's great too is to see him pop up and stuff like the Toy Story films as the yeah. the green plastic uh, army man sergeant. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and then, like I said, Michael Bowen. Michael Bowen is uh, you know Tarantino uses him sometimes now and. He's still around, but Michael Bowen, one of my favorite of the uh, the young punk actors who played a lot of douchebags and assholes in my in my time, and, uh, and played Carradine's half brother. Oh, is he? Yeah, I didn't even know oh, that. Oh, wow, I did not know that. I didn't know that. I wonder why I didn't know that. He works a lot though, and he's always worked a lot. And I, I like him. I've always liked him uh, quite a bit. He was evidently in Django Unchained, but I don't even remember him in that because there's a lot of people oh, in that yeah. film that you don't see. But. Um, yeah, he's in uh, a ton of stuff. So we'll uh, we'll get into it. Uh, Large William, you wanted to lead on this, so sure. Just to finish on the Bowen thing, I, I always lament that Bowen doesn't play good guys because I mean he's great at playing kind of assholes, but I don't know. I feel like he'd be good as a good guy. I don't know. Yeah, he's a kind face. <laughs> he does have a kind face. I think that's why he works so good as a bad guy, though, because he's got this kind of blonde hair, kind of sandy blonde look and stuff and he always kind of plays these assholes and stuff <laughs> yeah he looks a bit like my uncle too which might be a subconscious thing for me to be willing him towards face roles and in, in, a, in a moment of insanity i just realized he's the same age as my parents which is insane because michael bowen seriously does not look as old as he is i mean my, my parents aren't ancient but 1953 michael bowen doesn't look like he's that old he looks to me and i've never said this on air he looks to me like he could be the much older brother of Dr. Zom. Yeah. I've always thought yeah. that. Yeah. Hey, he's, like the, he's like the perfect combo of Dr. Zom and uh, Loaf because he wears the Loaf hat too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Um, but kid, um, Mike, uh, how far back do you go with this film? Well, I uh, – had just discovered uh, Eastwood and Van Cleef and Bronson. And as this, you know, I was like, uh, say, 14, 15, 16, uh, discovering all these um, tough guys of yore. And uh, really wondering, is like, where's the modern day equivalent to this? And, you know, we had just come off the Tom Cruise 80s with, you know, cocky arrogance being kind of the prevailing tough guy mode. Um, and I was really just kind of uh, puzzled why there wasn't like the kind of stoic reserved tough guy available then and i was at my buddy's house spending the night and um uh he had hbo on and kid comes on and uh it was like i don't know three in the morning and he was like hey man we gotta turn in and i said okay but i'm already intrigued by the first 20 minutes of this so pop in a tape please and so he did and uh, yeah it's been you know i'm kind of tempted to call it a guilty pleasure favorite but uh i don't know there's enough going on in that movie that that is really pulled off uh, well, you know, there's so many sour notes in the movie, but there's also enough really just nicely put together sequences. And CT is just so good in that that uh, is that uh, yeah. I, I don't even I don't even I don't even need to qualify it as a guilty pleasure. No, I don't think you do because one of my one of the things I was really impressed with this film is if I was to tell you you're going to see this film, uh, it's you know a revenge story of sorts. It's got that western feel, you know, the stranger returning to a town and 
and I was to tell you it had Ryan Austin Green in it and, and see Thomas Howell's the tough guy, you, you would think that if you liked it, it was a guilty pleasure. But one of the things I like most about this film is the restraint that uh, Robinson uses with the film. Like, he never takes it, other than, I think the only thing that I really think is, is really, really ill-advised is all the Metal Louie stuff. Like, I have to feel that it seems like, you know, an agent was pushing hard to, to have some moments for Brian Austin Green to <laughs> springboard into something else, which, you know, but I think otherwise the film here's, has a lot of restraint. Here's the, thing about, here's the thing about his character. I think uh, his character right now is aged really poorly because at the time it was an attempt to have this hip character and it's just, uh, you know, just aged very poorly right now. I think in like 20 years from now, that character is going to be fine because people won't be able to relate to him at all. And it'll just be like some goofy character. Like if we saw some, you know, roaring twenties film right now, and there was like some guy who was, uh, you know, speaking all the roaring twenties jive talk or something. Uh, it wouldn't matter really how, you know, uh, kind of, uh, unhip that played now. Um, so yeah, metal Louie is, is, uh, uh, pretty grating right now, but I think the character will, you know, it's just like watching some uh, spaghetti western with some kind of colorful sidekick character or something like that. Uh, I think uh, I think it'll be all right soon. Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope in 20 years <laughs> I don't hate him as much as well. Hate's a strong word, but it's funny and it's ironic because Brian Austin Green uh, has kind of got he's into a hip, some of he's, a he's come guy. full circle now. He's he's got into the like if this film was made today, he would be in the kid role. He's done films like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. he's, you know, he's had some tattoos, airbrushed. <laughs> also, on or by, like I said, behind the scenes, he's a hip hop guy. Actually, he's, not he's a, a big hip hop guy. Yeah, he's not yeah. a uh, well. As far as you know, <laughs> being in, passionate about hip hop. Yeah, he's a hip hop Louis. Yeah, he, he would be hip hop Louis today. That's right. It would be hip hop Louis if they made the film today. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he is suppressing a DVD, a legitimate DVD release of Kid. He's worried that uh, it's just street cred, man. Clash, Metal Louis is going to clash with his hip hop world. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Um, See Thomas Howe and Brian Austin Green, two actors that have both worked in the volleyball genre. And they both have done work for Asylum. Yes, they have. Yes. Yeah. See, See Thomas, Thomas Howe is kind of like the go-to guy for for Asylum. Yeah. Well, here's the crazy thing is, yeah, See Thomas Howe is be, you know, even back then at the time of Kid, he was already shaping up to be this direct-to-video superstar. Uh, why he never to my knowledge, ever played this kind of stoic, reserved, tough guy, because, I mean, he has an amazing capacity for stillness. David Dale Dye, yes. his email correspondence with me, called it his dead-eye, uh, Tom Howell's dead-eye look. Uh, yeah, I mean, he just, he excels at it so much, and I was so thrilled as a teenager to find this performance, because it was like the, to me, it was like the equivalent of, you know, the modern-day equivalent of Eastwood and stuff. And uh, Totally. Totally. I couldn't agree more, and it's funny, because I always have liked C. Thomas Howell, and I, I kind of lamented that he didn't get bigger because I feel like, you know, there's that much celebrated group of actors that worked on The Outsiders and stuff, and he's always kind of the one that, that didn't quite make it over the hump, and I've always lamented that. And to see this just reminded me of that again. And it, I'll tell you, being a man of mid-30s, uh, you know, all of us being around the same age, to see a young guy play tough like that, especially one that, you know, let's face it, C. Thomas Howell has boyish good looks for him to be able to pull that off is a testament i think to his chops because that's the kind of role that you could kind of roll your eyes because you see a lot of actors try to butch themselves up and it's not believable it becomes very silly and distracting yeah yeah he is uh he is uh quite the working actor i should say i think he's got like 14 or 15 credits this this year coming out 
Wow. And um, yeah, he's uh, yeah he's got uh, like nine films that still haven't been released yet that are coming out this year. Already, <clears throat> including one called Dirty Dealing 3D. Dirty Dealing 3D, which sounds like a Rocco Sofredi film. <laughs> it does. Ooh. Base Dance 3D. Ooh, that's directed by Christopher Robin Hood. So uh, nice. and starring Michael Madsen and uh, C. Thomas Howell. So I'm sure that one will be uh, something to yeah, look out for. Stamp of quality, Michael Madsen. <laughs> Michael Madsen. That's right. Um, I love uh, I love the way this opens too. I got to say, a lot. Of, I really like the score for this film. It feels really moody. And you really do get sort of that spaghetti western feel with the film, or just you know western in general. But um, but the thing, one thing that you know, the stuff that the music opens the film with is really great, and it somehow subtly morphs into flutes, wind chimes, and eagles crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's the same music I hear during orgasm. So. <laughs> I've seen this movie like uh, probably once every year since I was 14. I don't remember a single eagle crying. Mike, near the beginning, the first 10 minutes of the film, when he gets off the bus and he's kind of, you know, getting the lay of the land, there's eagles crying. Well, well, can we hear an eagle cry from you? You cannot. You cannot. I haven't had enough coffee to do an eagle cry this early in the morning. Um, But, uh, you know, another thing we don't get too much in film, I'll, I'll move past that and pretend it never happened. Another thing we never get in films, or I feel like we don't get very much in films anymore, is everything becomes about big corporate sheen. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a a grassroots guy all the time, but I love the device of small town motels. And, you know, you get to see that in this. And I think the film and Robinson, he only directed two things. And I really think that's a shame because he was a guy, like I was saying, I feel like he really showed a lot of restraint and, um, he took great advantage of you know, a limited budget and, and really utilized, got his cast who are very capable to do the heavy lifting for him and took advantage of you know, a nice little locale that he'd had to base the film around. Really, there's, what, probably four or five different locations in the film all in close proximity to each other? Yes. This is easily one of the smallest towns I've ever seen in a movie. Would, yeah. would, would you guys agree? Well, and you wonder if they showed up and that was the location or whether it required some, you know, production design and, you know, to try to kind of make it dingier and run down and decrepit or whether they just showed up and, you know, that was the location. I kind of like to think it's the former. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that it's, it's the it's the one strip. Uh, we talked about that with Streets of Fire last week about how, uh, you know, it's got that old Western one uh, main street with, uh, you know, you even got a barbershop in this film. So you got the barbershop, you got the motel, you got the bar, all that stuff. You know, it, it's basically that old western thing. And instead of coming in on a horse, he comes in on a bus. And and, uh, and I really like all those little things that uh, that uh, Robinson's kind of working with there. And uh, outside of the ranch house and some stuff shot uh, where the bus incident happens, um, really they just stay right there on that main strip most of the way through the film. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, interesting piece of side trivia: Damon Martin, who plays the the moose-haired, uh, douchey, sleeveless sidekick to um, <laughs> to Michael Bowen, he went on to become an executive producer. He he uh, did uh, Che Guevara and the Aja Argento film, The Heart Is Deceitful Above All Things. Crazy. So, which is a nice transition because his last acting role was Amityville, nineteen ninety two. It's about time. That that's the tagline. It's about time. I needed an episode of Blossom, so interesting. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, I feel like um, 
sorry, let me just see. I lost my train of thought. I was, we actually, I'll jump past that. We already talked about the dangly earring and, and the, you know, the Jeep and it's, you know, I, I don't know if Mike intended this, but he, he might've inadvertently programmed a, uh, animal print seat cover in vehicles, double feature this week between <laughs> the convertible in uh, perfect killer and, and the Jeep of uh, Brian Austin green in this one. Yeah, you nailed it, Will. I'm all about the subgenre, <laughs> the, the esoteric <laughs> double. Mike, That's I can it. see, I can see your future. I, I bet the car you have right now has Fantastic. has some type of animal print on it. Fantastic. Yeah, um, Mike Malloy <laughs> driving the, uh, down the road the, the zebra young- print. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, the douche, the young douchesness. They're so awful, man. They. Uh, they they want to make you know they, there's two things they love they love rape and they love puppy pizza. <laughs> what was a puppy pizza? Puppy pizza. That's when they they were going to get the uh, the He's dog got ran the over dog tied up on the. the oh oh yeah, pack. that's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, I think it's Bowen who uh, exclaims, <laughs> "Puppy pizza time!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that was great. if you could go through Bowen's career. And some of the things he said in, in front of a camera. Reel. Oh, man, he's got a hell of a highlight reel. He said some of the, yeah. the craziest things in cinema history. Yeah. <laughs> that might be uh, up there. I had totally forgotten about it. I didn't even take a note of it. I was too busy taking notes of uh, <laughs> animal print seats, which the reason why I was laughing so hard is because every now and then Will and I will have the same note. And now I have to scratch off animal print seats on both of my damn films. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, what I like about that railway scene uh, is that um, you're not sure where the film's uh, kind of level of brutality is at the point, And you don't know whether the dog is going to get it. You don't know later whether Michael Bowen is going to get it in that scene. Uh, and neither one of them do. And so you kind of feel safe after watching that film. It's like, oh, this is going to be kind of a nice little PG-13 kind of thing. <clears throat> yep. And so then, by the time the Michael Cavanaugh brutality happens, uh, then it's you know so much more of a shocker. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also that scene with the, the initial train track scene is good because I think even though nothing happens, I think in the back of our heads it's setting up a bit of anxiety for us. Like it's make you know it, for me it felt like. Um, I couldn't really, it, it almost had the opposite effect where I didn't breathe a sigh of relief because I felt like they'd stretched it out enough uh, in the best possible way that I was kind of wondering what was going to happen. Like, when was the other shoe going to drop? You know, because they play it right to the, the last second. And I like that scene because I think it it establishes uh, Howell quite well. I mean, he's got like the broken broomstick to, uh, to Bowen's neck and, you know, the train's about to come. They're cutting between Bowen squirming to get off and... And the train coming and stuff, and it works really well. And so, of course, it ends with with uh, Metal Louie. No relation to Metal Mikey, we should say. Um, I, I know what line you're going to quote here, and uh, God, it's, it's so embarrassing. You're going to quote. I, I picked this film, and I said it wasn't a guilty pleasure. Now you're going to. No, it's not, Mike. Dude's a fucking yes. horse. Yes. Yes, Mike. This I can tell you right now. This is not a guilty pleasure. It is. It, this film has aged well. Yes, it has. It absolutely has. has. And I think. Let me, let me let me add though that that uh, that train sequence. I mean, talking about using a Western trope, that is like the oldest of Western tropes. I really like that yeah. they did that because I can't remember the last film I saw where there was threat by laying on train tracks. I mean, well, well you watched I, one this week. Yeah. What? Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger. Oh well, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, that was two weeks ago. And right. uh, that film is completely forgettable. <laughs> so, yeah, this was done much better. With, yeah, you know, that was $250 million, and I don't even remember that. 
with uh, the with the Western homages, Kid doesn't really you know do it on the nose. It's uh, it kind of establishes it at the the very first scene um, with his arrival from the bus. Uh, kind of two nods to Fistful of Dollars because uh, he appears from the cloud of dust, which is very similar to Eastwood appearing from the cloud of dust after the dynamite at end of uh, at the end of Fistful. And uh, then he, he walks down the main street, and uh, everybody's peeking out their shops and whatnot, looking at the stranger. And, uh, you know, that's very fistful, because uh, Eastwood has a ride into town where all the people are, you know, peering out of their little uh, dwellings. You know, I also uh, thought... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just that, that that's kind of, uh, as far as, like, really homage kind of stuff, that's kind of where it ends. And then I- it, it just becomes a kind of a... a thing of its own that's just kind of vaguely informed by sorry i'm gonna keep jumping in i I was gonna say i agree with you i don't think it does anything on the nose i feel like it it's its own film you know it it never some films fall into that trap of really being heavy-handed about showing their hand as far as what they're influenced by and it just doesn't do that it feels like it's it does it just well enough to, to kind of know where Robin, what Robinson's working with. Um, like even early on, you know what I kind of thought of until Howell's character became a lot more involved with, with Kate and Louie is I kind of was, I was like, is this going to be like a high plains drifter type thing, you know, with kind of coming back into town and, and whatnot drifting in. And, but you know, it, it obviously wasn't, uh, as, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to spoil that from people who haven't seen it, but it didn't go that way. Yeah. But, well, uh, the only kind of bummer, um, when he's walking down the the street is we see some flashbacks that kind of tip the viewer off as to why he's there. And I almost wonder if that was like some kind of studio note imposed on uh, a cut of the film or something, because imagine if we hadn't seen that, it would be like bad day of black rock or something where some stranger comes into town and makes everybody nervous, but nobody knows why he's there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Would have worked quite well. Um, I have to say, in all the films we've done, we've done so many sleazy films and genre films and, you know, genre films from around the world. I've never seen a handcuff collection in a film before this one. And you'd think that would be a, a, a nice little instrument to use in, in some of the revenge films or the cop films that we watch. But I'd never seen one until this. Have you guys ever seen one in a film? A handcuff, handcuff collection? No, no. Actually, uh, if you think about it, Double uh, Perfect Killer has a handcuff collection to another. D- no, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that scene that follows the handcuff collection with the bug spray and the tennis ball—that's an inventive and really awful, um, and not awful in terms of execution, but awful in, in what it evokes and how it made me feel. That, that's a re- that was a really well. See, that's a director who knows. How to get the most out of his budget? You know that's a, that was a great moment. Oh yeah, because he's uh, he's turning on the uh, the hanging light bulb uh, when he gets handcuffed, and uh, so the whole rest of the scene is played out with a swinging light bulb. I mean, yeah, it's uh, there's all kinds of moments in Kid that uh, just uh, the more I watch it, the more I see ni- nice little things like that going on. Are you guys yeah. are you guys like me that if you ever go to somebody's house or in like their basement and they have a hanging light bulb like that, do you leave their basement immediately? <laughs> because it's like cinema has uh, painted the yeah. hanging light bulb for you. Has taught well, me that c- cinder block basements in general. Yeah, uh, yeah, bad vibes, man. Yeah, it's taught me that hanging light bulbs like that bad deal. Somebody turns on and starts swinging. I'm like, uh oh, 
Well, if, I, if I hit, I, I hear dun dun dun. I'm I'm okay with it unless there's a lone wooden chair in the middle of the room. <laughs> then I got to get the fuck out. Um, <laughs> in a, a bloodstain. It's like a, a mm, man, something might not I be mean, quite right I mean, here. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, I think the film does moody really well. I think that's one of the things I like most is the mood the film has. And for a film of its time, 1990, you know, lower budget kind of action or revenge film, I think a lot of films, especially this is when you get the bleed over from the 80s, you, other than, again, Louis's character, there is so much restraint and mood is something that is really, really done well in this film, which I appreciated. Hey, after, the, after that scene, after the tennis ball scene, I think he, that's the scene where he walks out uh, of that shop and we see it all through the haze of somebody's got a barrel fire going in the street or something and we see it all through that kind of weird haze that fire creates. Uh, just, yeah, all kinds of moments like that. It's like, uh, you know, most guys directing something that's going to be some direct-to-video action film. Uh, why even bother to shoot through fire, you know, for a scene like that? It's just like, we got a good shot list to get through, and we're going to get through it by the end of the day, and, you know, see Thomas Howell is going to, you know, punch some guys, and we're going to wreck some cars, and, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, a totally different approach in Kid. Yeah, there's more flourishes, right? So, it, and, and I appreciate that, certainly. See um, Thomas Howell, as our hero, does a chin-up, which I think is in every good loner heroes handbook yep you gotta do a chin up um then the wife beat her shirt yeah yeah well yeah exactly exactly um i always think to myself when i see films like this when they have one costume i always think you know when did they wash that does he stink especially in the dusty right desert like yeah uh, yeah well i mean he's got you know sarah trigger the girl which by the way she has a great horse washing scene did i say that right horse horse washing horse that was hard to say there you go but she's uh, wa- washing a horse, which sounds more perverted than it actually is. But it actually is kind of perverted uh, in the film, and I really like that. That's also a very, uh, well, I don't know if that's a Western trope, but it's definitely a uh, 90s uh, <laughs> a VHS trope of these uh, half-naked women. Well, not half-naked, but sexually seduced women uh, around horses. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe that was I'm, me. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Before the exactly. internet. <laughs> Yeah. I have to say I'm glad that they didn't go down too many um use a plumbing term and say branch lines. I'm glad they didn't go too many side roads with <laughs> with Kate and Kid and have love scenes and all this. I'm just I'm glad they kind of kept the film lean and mean and they kept that relationship kind of pure of heart, which I think works better for the Kate character anyway, because of the the, the final reveal at the back end of the film. Yes. You know, they don't. They, this is a lean film, too. I feel like there's not a lot of flab on it. I think it, it's under 90 minutes, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a nice, uh, short little film. And uh, I'm going to agree with you. I think what the one strength I came away from this with, I could see why people would overlook this because it looks like that straight to video VHS stuff. You see the, the box art, and, and it looks almost like they're selling it like a romance film on the box art. Uh, Is it? I haven't seen the box. Yeah, you should uh, check out the box art. It's uh, yeah, he's got a shotgun slung over his shoulder, and she's kind of clutching onto him. It looks very dated. It looks very like uh, he's like some kind of uh, a new hero for the nineties kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, you think it's like some kind of action version of Reality Bites or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's again, it's like it was the. For me, it was the modern-day equivalent to all the Eastwood stuff that I was discovering at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And they that, that's the, uh, I think, the tone of the film. Not the tone so much, but the atmosphere, I should say, more than the tone, 
is what I really came away from this thinking, man, this this really works. I mean, this is, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Robinson, the director, was kind of ahead of his time with kind of uh, looking back on uh, older genres and kind of feels and stuff. Because you said High Plains Drifter, and I got a High Plains Drifter vibe. Well, to a degree, obviously. To a degree, until you get some more reveals yeah. that ground it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. The Drifter's got a totally different type of feel toward the back end. But, that is on the show. The big question is why the hell didn't CT ever play this kind of character again? He just, you know, goes through all these different bland performances uh, when this is like something he was had an incredible knack for. Yeah, he did. And for him, again, to be baby-faced, I'm already, my guard's already up to say, motherfucker, prove me wrong. And he, and I mean, I knew him going in because I liked him, but he pulls it off so well. I mean, there's never a doubt. He's very believable in this role. Very believable. Yeah. I've um, I've always liked C. Thomas Howell. I mean, I'm I'm with Will on that. Uh, he's made a lot of questionable material in his career, but uh, I mean, he was a big part of my youth. I mean, I, I grew up. Uh, oh yeah. And the Outsiders was a big deal, and uh, he was in ET. He was in uh, what else was he in? There was another. Well, his other his other badass role besides this to me has always been because uh, he was the one who got really cold in Red Dawn. He That's just right. Kind of became a little more emotionless than yeah. the other guys very early on. Yeah, Red Dawn's another good example. He, but he, I always thought he was going to go on to bigger and better things as well. And and me, me and Will were talking on the phone this week, and I was talking about Soul Man, and we were talking about how it may have hurt his career, which it looks like it probably did in some ways. Um, but you know that was a hit at the time. That movie made almost thirty million dollars, which is kind of sad in a way because if you see the film, it's completely very strange uh, creation. But really, after that, he really just started working on any number of uh, films. Now, I did see a film he was in in the 90s, a couple years after this, called That Night, which was had him and uh, Juliette Lewis and a very young, uh, I believe it was, uh, yeah, Eliza Dushku. There you go. I had to go. I had to look. Um, but that film's really good. Uh, it is a little bit of a romance, but he was kind of a badass in that, so I recommend you guys check that out. Mike, okay. have you ever seen a big a big favorite of, of the awesome one, Fabian? Uh, the Sweeper with C. Thomas Howell and Ed Lauder. Uh, and Jeff Fahey, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I uh, I just remember mainly with C. Thomas Howell, after I watched enough of them, I got pretty disenchanted. So mainly I just remember the video box art. I, I never even bothered after a certain point with him. Yeah, that one uh, Fabian speaks highly of. And I, I, <laughs> looking into the film, for some inexplicable reason, C. Thomas Howell wears a House of Pain baseball hat through the whole film. So <laughs> I don't know if that was his message. Uh, but uh, no, a after, gra- kid, after kid, I, I gave him so many different shots uh, trying to find something where he duplicated that kind of performance. Uh, he just never did uh, to protect and serve. I remember I, even uh, his directorial debut, Pure Danger, because he had a bushy 70s stash in that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, he just kind of always just blanded his way through these films when you clearly was capable, as proven by kid, uh, yeah. is something kind of distinctive. Oh man, I, I I looked as we were talking. You were talking there, Mike, into some of his credits to see if there was something else maybe he could have done. And Nickel and Dime sounds like it could be a pulpy film, but the cover it looks awful. It's got him and Wallace Shawn, and it's like uh, an odd couple comedy where C. Thomas Howell uh, plays a PI who hasn't paid his taxes in ages, and Wallace Shawn's the IRS agent trying to get him. And the cover art is awful, awful. It's too bad. Yeah, it really is too bad. I'll just go through a couple more things very quickly here. Um, I love the line. I think I think it's the like the barkeep when, um, what for me is probably the most neat. Well, not probably. It is the most neatest film in the scene. Is the uh, 
the the Metal Louie performance at the uh, the bar. Um, didn't like those tunes, man. Uh, dreadful, but I love the line that I think it's the barkeep. He says that um, Louie looks like a maraschino cherry with a chicken fried steak up there. <laughs> yeah, so that was a nice little line. Um, I like the I like when he goes off and does his little lead. Yeah, and the one some guy, hot licks. yeah, he got some hot licks going there. He did. You guys, did, uh, you didn't mention the the, the great Brian Austin Green quote. My favorite one in the film is the "Banged by the Dick of Doom." Bang! That's right. He says that early on. What's wrong? Did you, what's the matter? Did you get banged by the Dick of Doom? I think he says that, that's the best one. That that that's an yeah. amazing line. <laughs> we get speaking of amazing. We get an amazing camper explosion on a cliff. Oh yeah, that looks great. I did. Yeah, and, and great editing leading up to that. Um, yeah, that. That whole scene I, I dig because, uh, you know, the guy's got this giant pile of uh, aluminum cans. You could just imagine that there are people living on the fringes like that. Who yeah. just, uh, you know, just kind of live out in the woods and, uh, uh, you know, wander into town every once in a while. And, uh, yeah, they, they set that up nicely. Yeah. They do. They really, really do. That guy, and, that guy hates country music and pinball machines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. He totally does, man. He flips it over, man. Yeah. Busts it up. Like you tilted it. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's now I tilted. I think it's just now I tilted. Goddamn for sure tilted now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and I love, I'll tell you, C. Thomas Howell delivers an amazing flying punch to Bowen at the back end of that scene. Right when uh, when Bowen and his friend come in uh, with Ermy, and he's got to get that fight started. He does this really great flying punch to Bowen's chin. Um <laughs> Great knife throw at the back end from C. Tomlin. We're always fans of knife throws in this film, dating back to Yojimbo. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, my uh, those are all my notes. One final thing, minor gripe. I feel like the decision made at the end, I don't think it quite shatters emotionally like um, the director intended it to. Um, but on the whole, I mean, it's a minor gripe. Everything else up until that point works very, very well. Yeah, yeah, I think I know what decision you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing I'll say about Michael Bowen uh, playing the douchebags is it's like almost like he's like he might be the greatest actor at getting comeuppance, and, and you know, like you want him to get it, and he has gotten it so many times at this point in his career <laughs> in films. Yeah, like I always so- like movies that uh, have kind of a secondary heavy, which is kind of uh, what I kept in mind when playing the secondary heavy in the Scarlet Worm. These yeah. characters who are not uh, really the main objective of the hero uh but they're just mainly a nuisance character and right. to them like bowen and his brother uh they're just like dead set on uh you know taking down c thomas howell uh but to him he's like you know just swatting at them like flies they're just like a pest to him he uh he has you know bigger fish to fry and he has a a, a more important objective um so yeah i I always like that kind of uh, dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives gives us some good, the best kind of sort of padding. Like it, it breaks it up from us always having sort of steely-eyed uh, kind of glares between our main heavy and our good guy. You know, it breaks that up enough that, you know, he, he gets to have a few run-ins with these secondary right. heavies. Yep. Um, Mike, you got anything you want to add about the film? Oh, we, we talked it up. I do like uh, near the end... Um, I like uh, after he's taking care of most of his business, he comes in and talks to Sarah Trigger's character, and she says, what now? And he says, I don't know. I never thought much past this. 
which I thought yeah. was pretty good in a revenge film. Uh, you know, nobody's really addressed, you know, somebody, a character who's just like burned with revenge and that is, you know, just preoccupied his life. Uh, they've never really addressed. It's like, yeah, what's what? What do you? Where do you? Now that you've accomplished your revenge, where do you go from here? What's what? What drives your life now? Yeah, I yeah. think that the, I think it's a realistic line, all things considered. Because, like you said, at that point, you're probably not thinking beyond that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually made a note of that. I always think about that when I think about revenge films. You know, you get so driven by this idea of revenge that, in reality, if if you are so driven by this this revenge that eats at your life and it becomes your main focus, what do you do when uh, that revenge is uh, satiated? What do you do? I mean, do you, do you, do you open a store? Do you, uh, you know, do you, do you start selling cars? I mean, what do you do? Well, not cars maybe, but uh, gobbles the goat. Uh. Yeah. yeah. Start selling gobbles the goat at the Bring local store. <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you're the guy that opens the army surplus store for the next action hero that comes along. Right, <laughs> you know the Frederick Forrest and falling down character. <clears throat> uh, you got anything else, Mike? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's that's basically it. Uh, just uh, if you guys ever go back and watch this, uh, just pay attention to all kinds of little scenes where there's all kinds of cross cutting and all this editing and stuff that uh, you just really don't see in films like this generally. Um, it's you know, the more I see it, the more I appreciate just these little tiny beats and moments in the film, which sadly so many of them are spoiled by like some kind of stray sour note line. Um, but uh, yeah, there's God, I uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm okay with calling it a not more than a guilty pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, and I you know I, like I said, I never saw it, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I never saw it because I saw the cover and. By that time, I was already done with C. Thomas, and I was like, you know, I, I just don't think he's going to pan out the way I wanted him to, and I'm just not going to look at it. And at the time, I can remember even thinking, well, he's a little young for the kind of uh, badass character. But, you know, I, I, I regret, regretfully, I didn't see this at the time, and I wish I would have, because I do think this holds up, especially for, 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 for a film from 1990. Um, I talked in my correspondence with Dale Dye. Uh, he said something about uh, it was in and out of the theaters so quickly that I barely got to see it with an audience, uh, alluding to the fact that it did get a theatrical. Well, so. that's nice. I got to say, I didn't, I didn't mention him when we were talking about this film, but he's really good in the film. I think to kind of out heavy Arlie Ermey yeah. is testament to Dye's weight that he brings because he's really good. He brings menace, and they, they build it up, you know, nicely. By not having him in the first, and I actually, I got to be honest. It, maybe it's going to sound silly to you guys, but I didn't see the reveal. What the? I, I, I should have maybe caught it, but I, I quite like when he shows up and it, it muddies the water for our hero. I oh yeah, like that. yeah. That's 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 the film's uh, main twist on the revenge film. Uh, the revenge yeah. formula is the fact that uh, yeah, he he gets a soft spot in his heart for these two kids who happen to be connected to. Is a uh, revenge quest uh, without revealing too much. Um, I do like the moments between Dale Dye and Arlie Army where their two cars pull alongside each other, and Dale Dye says, "You just find the son of a bitch, Luke," because it's yeah. uh, in that one little moment you see that Arlie Army is intimidating and is you know evil as he is. He's in turn intimidated by Dale Dye's character. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I really, never know what. Uh, well, I don't want to give it away. I'll talk to you guys about it when we uh, go to break, but. Uh... There is something I was going to say, but I can't say it because I'll spoil the film for some people. And I'm sure a lot of people, honestly, in our group probably have not seen this film. 
Uh, I did like the uh, the scene at the dinner table with Delta. Talk about dropping oh, that awkward. Uh, yeah, talk about dropping that frozen ham through the coffee table. Well, <laughs> he said he said that that was really hard for him to muster as an actor because he was saying it in polite company in front of the actress right there, and uh, he also thought that it was just like uh, a line just came kind of came from out of nowhere. So it, it, was it does. Uh, to pull off, but he says he knew it was meant to be a shocker, and it is. So, I can tell you, I was taking a note when that scene was going on. I was writing something down, and all of a sudden, I hear him drop this line. And I'm like, I look up. I'm like, holy shit! <laughs> what did he just say? What yeah. I think he just said? I think that's in in in. It's organic to the character because he's the kind of guy that is going to keep people on their toes, and, and he's not going to pull any punches. Well, if you because look, it's his world. If right? you look back at the performance, it's almost like he's thinking that line like the whole time he's looking at the C. Thomas Howell character and he's just waiting to drop it. Well, and C. Thomas Howell just sits there giving him nothing to work with. So like the conversation almost has to go there cuz C. Thomas Howell is just like uh purely internalized sitting at that uh dinner table. That's right. Yeah. Well, if he wasn't quiet before, he's certainly going to be quiet after that. It's like, "Whoa. Uh, excuse me?" Um but yeah, no, I, I think I think atmosphere is the best way to describe this film in a lot of ways. I mean, it, I really like the way it looks. I don't know where it was shot. I would assume somewhere in Southern California. Um, uh, but it, it really is a, a good-looking film. We should say, I don't know if we, any of us said that, uh, we did say off the air, but that uh, Robert Yeoman uh, shot this film, and uh, he's going to be working on the uh, Django film. Yeah, and he's you know he's an A list DP now. So yeah, yeah, he's worked with uh, Wes Anderson and quite a few others. I was looking through his filmography a little while ago because I mean I I've seen a lot of stuff he's been attached to, and you never forget a name like Yeoman Yeoman because I, I think uh, doesn't that mean something? Doesn't the word does Yeoman? Yeoman's work? Yeah. yeah, it's a naval it's a naval rank. Yeah, yeah. So I always remember when I see his name. So I remember when the credits were going by, I saw his name. I was like, wow, I wonder where this falls in his career. So because. Um, he shot a lot of stuff recently. Just shot, uh, well, like I said, Grand Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel because he works with Wes Anderson a lot, if uh, not all the time. But he shot all kinds of stuff. Bridesmaids, he shot. Just saying stuff that people would know off the top of their head here. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, emailed back and forth with Bob a little on about this film, and uh, he said that uh, the director definitely, he and the director, like all their reference points were all spaghetti westerns while doing this. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Nice. You can see that. I tell you, uh, a film he shot that uh, isn't great but um, uh, looks great um, is uh, a film called uh, oh, uh, White Lies. I remember that one. Uh, the film's not great, but it, it looks great, and it's a great it's a great example of a, a DP really bringing a lot to a film. Wow, I didn't know he shot uh, the Wizard, the uh, Nintendo film. <laughs> Oh, nice! Yeah, favorite right. from my childhood. I tell you, he, he shot drugs. Being a douchebags, the, the the villain in that Luke with the power glove. What a motherfucker! Yeah, yeah, that guy actually went on to become a uh, real life criminal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, he, talk about a year. Uh, Yeoman shot Drugstore Cowboy and The Wizard in the same year. <laughs> nice. Two two totally. Uh, well, actually, two films that have a lot in common. I think. If you're in there. All right, um, let's get into our make or breaks MBTs. Will make or break is a scene with the tennis ball. I really like that scene. Something about whether it's plastic bags on the heads, but anytime there's suffocation or smothering, it really um, really bothers me. And uh, this scene was done quite well because it's when he really st- when when uh, the see Thomas Howell finally he takes off the gloves, the kid gloves, 
and he just, <laughs> you know, he really does a number on it, and it shows it kind of shows how nasty the film is going to get at times. I like the setup of that film too. He's buying tennis balls and shit, and I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Yeah, <laughs> uh, my MVT of the film, most valuable thing is uh, Mr. Robinson. I think great job, you know, with a, with a very competent cast. I could give the MVT to the cast, but I'm going to go with Robinson. I think he made a really good film here, and it's too bad that he didn't work more. Two credits, two credits. It's really, really a shame. Um, and my score for the film is a 7.25 out of 10. I, I really, really dug this one. I'm glad you picked it, Mike, because I might not have seen it otherwise. And it's, mm. uh, it's one that I think people in our community would be well served to see. Well, yeah, now that you guys are so influential and even getting into distribution, I wanted to pick this one because, uh, yeah. yeah, like I, I'm not going to be satisfied until every gent has a, a T-shirt that reads, oh, shit, I'm fucking Badger. Uh, <laughs> I want lines like that to become classic. I want it, right. you know, people to be quoting stuff like, you got an idea I can see? No. Yeah, that's right, man. So classic. You got an idea I can see? No. <laughs> <laughs> or if, if you think about it, uh, this film really should be called like "No, Not Really" the motion picture because uh, <laughs> uh, the kid character is just constantly saying "No, Not Really." That's right. How do you listen to this shit? Loud, very loud. Yeah. Ah, yes. I still well, like... that, that one actually, that one actually is an okay exchange. <laughs> yeah, it is. I still like the. Uh, I mean, I'd still be happy with the puppy pizza time. <laughs> yeah, puppy pizza. Puppy pizza time. <laughs> and that's uh, this is great, but yeah, there is a lot of great lines in the film. So, uh, Mike, you got MVTs, make or breaks? Yeah, uh, I wrote down my MVT. Remind me what uh, make or break well, it? Make or break scene in the film? The one that kind of the one moment that elevated you... it or that broke it for you? Oh, I see. Okay, uh, yeah, MVT. Uh, it was going to be a toss up between you know either the editing, the directing, or the, the cinematography. But uh, really, I I got to uh, hand it to. Uh, see Thomas Howell, uh, his performance uh, is you know really what first attracted me to the whole film, and so that's still still what does it for me. Uh, yeah, tennis ball scene. Uh, that's that's the uh, that's the last scene I saw before Wit and I shut the video off or shut the TV off before going to bed on my my little uh, spend the night uh, uh, first exposure to this film. And yeah, I just like sat there in the sleeping bag thinking about the this film, and it's like, man, how does this thing end? I got to see it tomorrow morning. Yeah. yeah so uh, what yeah. a point to leave it off at. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. you could have went to sleep. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. amazing. Bravo to you to being able to fall asleep at that point because I'd have been like, I gotta get, I gotta get back in that film. Well, I uh, <laughs> already at three a.m. I was pushing it. I uh, led a very <laughs> sheltered true. teen life and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's your score out of 10? Oh, yeah, 7.75. Uh, oh, nice, nice, nice. I think we're all pretty much in agreement with this. So if I'm going to go with a different make or break, I'm going to go with the bar scene. I really like the bar scene. I, I like the bad Which country music. Well, I like the, the country? Yeah, I like the bad country music. I like the way they set that up. I like the way that uh, it's actually a pretty funny comedy moment. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to check out my band. And uh, then he goes and he plays he plays this really kind of very standard uh, old school country music and stuff. <laughs> it's actually kind of you know just a little chuckle from me, but uh, I like that and I like the whole pinball machine thing. And this guy he's like this real bull in a china shop guy and and uh, the bartender. And I like the editing of that scene. I like uh, the kind of ghostly way that C. Thomas Howe kind of steps out of the scene, steps back in. I really like that. And uh, interesting stuff. I'll talk about it again when we uh, on the air. Uh, anyway, um, 
Uh, my MVT is I'm gonna go with Hal. See Thomas Hal. I really like him in this film. Uh, I do. He's got a great face. He's always had a great face. He's aged well. Uh, I just the last thing I saw him in, he was actually in the the first of the Amazing Spider-Man that reboot of Spider-Man that ancient film of ten years ago. Um, and uh, he was in that playing a, a father character, but it was really cool to see him. You know, I mean, it's always good to see him because you know he does bring a lot of childhood memories for me. Um, but I do think he's a, I think he's a solid actor and, uh, it's really a shame he's kind of gotten caught up in what he's got caught up in, but I mean, I I guess he enjoys it because he works a lot. Yeah. We like it. So, I mean, you know, I'd like, I'd like to see him stretch his legs more, but you know, the man's got to pay the bills. Yep. Uh, my score for the film is a 7.25 as well. I really enjoyed it. It's a fun movie and, and really, uh, just solid stuff. All right. We're going to take a short break and, uh, come back. I got a. Yeah, hustle through the next review because the Steve Reeves uh, Jr. is going to be waking up soon here. All right, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be back right after this with uh, The Perfect Killer. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> That's Mickey Mouse's penis. I know it's the terror. Yeah, they don't look to be afraid. They look to be shocked. Here's the China. It's see Miley Cyrus's globulous breath. Night of the Living Podcast. I found more syrup on my pants. Bizarre adventure in fear. There was, however, a guy using a An experience in shock. More shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the Living Podcast. Ass to mouth is fantastic. Yeah. Holy shit! That just happened. What's that bad man doing to my donkey? Yeah, Ginger A Krampus. night of total terror. I can't maintain this level of ridiculousness. Night. Of the Living Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. Um, all right, so our next film is. Uh, do we? Was there something we were going to mention when we came back? Did you were going to mention the kid. The film we just talked about is on YouTube. Yes, nineteen ninety. Yes, so if you want to see it, you can't get your hands because it only ever had a VHS release here, and it was an Australian DVD, as Mike said, which was just uh, transferred from. Uh, yeah. VHS. Be, so be prepared that the YouTube uh, rip that's on there is very soft and a little murky, but I think you'll get uh, most of what you want if you're really curious about the film out of that. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this show and part of the group and stuff it won't be their first time they've seen a murky print of something. <laughs> or if they're really curious about it, they can demand an authorized DVD release. Yes. 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 That would be good. <laughs> now, speaking of a film that could use a nice DVD release. Uh, the Perfect Killer. Did you like that segue there, guys? Did you like that? <clears throat> Super professional, huh? That's right. Uh, the Perfect Killer is from 1977, directed by... <clears throat> the year me. we first brought the class to the trash. Yes, evidently. <laughs> Our time machine. Directed by Mario Siciliano. Siciliano. There we go. Uh, starring Lee Van Cleef, John Ireland, and uh, Robert Widmark, also known as Alberto Del Aqua. Aqua? Is that his name? Alberto sure. Delacroix, but I, I know him as Bob Woodbark, and he uh, he's he's been in quite a few things. He's always kind of a, a bit of a Ray Lovelock clone. I find him to look like Alain Delon a little bit. Yeah. Oh, to me, he's Van Damme. 
nice. nice. So he's he's a mixture. It's that accent, I yeah. guess. Maybe he's a mixture of Van Dam, yeah. Delon, and uh, and Lovelock. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a uh, whatever. quite a love child. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah, all three of them. That could be possible too with the same woman, probably. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. This one is uh, a hitman is allowed out of prison on the condition he continues killing for an organization. But he also becomes the target of a treacherous woman. All right, so uh, Mario Siciliano, also known as Marlon Serco. Yeah, that's right. Going for the Slavic uh, name when he released it, uh, Satesign. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, uh, I think he got into adult films late in his career. If I'm not right, if did I'm not, he? Yeah. But his films are sleazy. I know he did like a Wild Geese type film early on that Zom's a huge fan of. The Seven Red Berets. Yeah, he he did quite a few films. I know him from working with uh, Razumov. Ivan. Yeah, he worked with Razumov a lot. Yeah, he worked with him. He did a couple of uh, Sartana films as well. So he he has a little bit of a pedigree. Not the best Sartana stuff, but uh, he well. Does. And here's what's weird is that he made uh, a pseudo Jalo type thing. Jalo, for want of better term, uh, with uh, Jorge. Rivero, the uh, Mexican actor, uh, called Evil Eye, I think it was yeah, called. Yeah, Malocchio. Um, and then uh, Jorge, because I've gotten to be friends with Jorge, uh, he claims that uh, he made three Sartana films with Mario Siciliano that have never been released. Uh, oh, I wonder why. Yeah, he says that it was like a co-production with Venezuela and uh, oh. that uh, you know, he thinks like the negatives are just held up in a lab down there or something. Oh, crazy. Uh, Evil Eye also with uh, Richard Conti in it. That's right, man. <laughs> right, coming back around full circle. But yeah, his uh, his film career in '82, he made a film called Orgasmo Nonstop and Orgasmo Estokio Estokio or something. That's what Yeah, as uh, as as, as, Lee as, Castle. as Lee Castle. So it sounds like he may have ventured. Oh my into- gosh! To bring it full circle for me, he did a film called Sesso Allegro, which I listened to the score for that on YouTube uh, last week. Nice. Wow, that's crazy. So he has a bit of a career, uh, an interesting one, to say the least. So um, I was looking through some of the films he wrote and uh, seeing if there was anything in there, but I don't really see anything to really kind of bring up Killer's Carnival. Uh, so there we got that. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, who wants to lead on this one? Anybody? Me? Uh, anybody? I don't know. No. Sammy? No, I'll, 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 do it. Doesn't I'll do it. I'm in Rome. I'm going to do as the Romans do, so... Uh... <laughs> All right. Uh, does that mean you're leading, or does that mean you're kicking back? <laughs> I was going to follow somebody else's lead, but uh, I, mean, I, I feel uh, responsible for having picked it. So, yes, uh, The Perfect Killer, 1977. Um, yeah, it's uh, interesting you uh, should even mention adult-themed stuff, because uh, one thing that's always bugged me is when people hear any kind of instrumental funk, anything with a wah guitar, and uh, they say, oh, that sounds like porno music. But, uh, man, the, the head credits theme for Perfect Killer, if ever that, uh, that comparison is really valid, man, the, the, the wah guitar and everything just, like, just evokes pure sleaze. I love it. It's Cipriani, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. It's Cipriani, and a lot of this music turns up uh, is either from another earlier movie or turns up in a later movie. Uh, the, but, uh, yeah, it is Cipriani, and, uh, yeah, that... That score is just so funky and sleazy, and uh, yeah, it's really kind of uh, fits the film because the film is like a greatest hits of like Eurocrime extremes. You know, we end up uh, with a woman getting shot in her 
bikini region. We had, yeah. uh, you know, a fight with a guy in trannies and a straight razor. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's just like, we'll talk about that tranny fight. Now, what kind of steam room was that? It's a, it's a lot of safety hazards in that steam room. Yeah, real. <laughs> Not just the yeah, string razor and the trannies, but I mean, I'm talking about the steam itself. Yeah. And if and if trannies are your thing, more power to you. But I don't know. Does anybody really like a transvestite with a five o'clock shadow? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, different strokes for different folks. But you know, if I'm going to appreciate a tuck game, it's not going to be with a five o'clock shadow. No. Be worried yeah. about the. I'd be worried about the beard burn. Yeah, for real. Uh, so no. the perfect killer to me, uh, especially in this rewatch, this latest rewatch for. Me talking about it with you guys, um, kind of a great opening act and setup, and then uh, the climax and the denouement and the final scene are all great. Man, what a saggy middle that is! Um, Mike, I'm so glad you said that. The middle of this thing is <laughs> yeah. so flabby. Yeah, it is. And, and not only that, it's also confusing. Plus, Van Cleef's character just seems to be so inconsistently written. In one scene, he's yeah. telling he's telling the girl, he's like, "Hey, I'm falling into my old trap with you." I don't trust you. I don't dig this. The next scene, he's talking to Ireland and saying, hey, I need a passport for her. I'm not going to leave the country without her. Uh, just uh, so. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, by way of a little more plot uh, detail, uh, Van Cleef, uh, he and his, uh, his girl are pulling a uh, Greyhound racetrack robbery. And uh, during the heist, uh, he gets pinched and uh, she runs off with a third guy. And uh, becomes his lover. And uh, Van Cleef is in prison, uh, becomes a contract killer because there's a, a criminal organization that can get people sprung from jail if they start working for him. So uh, Van Cleef becomes a contract killer, and uh, eventually, you know, that brings him to an assignment involving his ex girlfriend. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that middle part, though. It's uh, good grief. Slab uh, City. Yeah, it, you know, it, it really starts to get uh, flabby after the confrontation between Van Cleef and his former uh, cellmate or library mate, whatever you want to call that. Right. Uh, right after that scene and the introduction of the uh, the Widmark character, it really starts to kind of just kind of hang around for a while. Now, the a lot of love making interior, not even love, but like a lot of kind of kissy face mm-hmm. um, interior stuff, which is crazy because the film, like you said, Mike has an amazing setup. It's like they're shooting dog races and uh, fucking Van Cleef's got this most, I guess, amazing or awful hairpiece with an ascot. And there's all these yeah, that, reveals. That, like we, we see so much, uh, uh, we, Older people, we see all this stuff and we think that's going to be a cautionary tale for me. I'm never going to do that. And then I don't know whether we are or not. But when I get old, when I start having a really craggy face, I want to keep my hair very, very short. Yes. Uh, I think craggy and shaggy is a bad combination. And uh, yeah, for Van Cleef to be all wrinkled and to have this shaggy hair, it's just good God, man. He, Go went, the, he went through a real phase with that shaggy hair, though, didn't he? He went through, I think, one of the one of the Sabata films, he's got some really bad hair. Or maybe it's God's uh, it, it, gun. Yeah, Return of Sabata, he's starting to grow it out a little. Yeah. yeah he went he through that phase with a... Big fan of the skull at late yeah. in life. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why he was doing that, but it's very strange. But you got to hang on to it, right? It's hard to let go of hair, man. Whatever you got, you're trying to hang on to. <laughs> but I agree with Mike. You, when you start to go, man, you got to keep it closely cropped. Yeah. yeah. Now, I got to say, do you guys? You guys got to be on the same page with me, though. How awesome is the assassination montage? Oh, it's fantastic! Oh, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. But yeah. that's the thing too that I felt like betrayed the film on the whole was one of my notes early on was. 
how um, how smart Siciliano was and how economical he was that within the first eight minutes of the film, we get a double cross, we get a heist, we get three or four assassinations, we get a jail stint. <laughs> it's like yeah. all that stuff should have been through the first hour of the film instead of all this kind of um, – kind of lovey-dovey, uh, tortured soul stuff that you get. You know what I mean? Like, I feel there's so much awesome stuff crammed into the opening that yeah. it's like, whoa, guys, you could have spread this out a little bit. <laughs> well, and there, it's in that flabby middle, there is some some you know, neat scenes. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, uh, I kind of even like the whole uh, would-be romance subplot with the model girl. I kind of like that. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Because it gives Van Cleef some cool lines uh, when he's kind of brushing her off and stuff. Uh, yeah. but, and you know, the, the scene where she gets shot in her, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that all happens during the middle and stuff, but yeah, there's just too many plot developments as far as, uh, you know, cause the, the, the ex-girlfriend is going to, you know, try to, uh, embroil Van Cleef in another scheme, which he does may or may not trust her on and stuff like that and all that kind of stuff. Good grief. Some of that could have been flushed. Yeah, I think maybe that might be some of the contribution of Santiago Moncada who uh, helped write this film. Because if I think about some of the other films he's worked on, he uh, worked on Cutthroat's Nine, he worked on Rico, oh. uh, some films like that. Uh, some of the, almost all those films have like a saggy middle to them. And and again, with Cutthroat's Nine, you get this romantic kind of subplot, right? Yeah, yeah. It's got the worst so. kissing ever. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about and, it. You know, it's cool too as a bit of a... Uh, novelty in a way to see Van Cleef sort of have romantic angle in a film because like I'm not an expert I love Van Cleef but I don't recall too many films where he's had you know a romantic subplot in his films yeah yeah I mean I gotta say that that hairpiece he's riding around in that convertible I mean that thing really stays on well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kept thinking to myself man that, that he had to have thought that might have been a bad idea <laughs> I mean come on there's no escaping that, man. That thing's going to blow off your yeah, fuck. He was not a small man, so, I mean, he was sitting well above that, uh, that windshield. windshield. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he told, I bet he told Siciliano, I bet he's like, this fucking hairpiece comes off. You're fucking dead meat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Oh, shit. I love his, 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 uh, his, uh, dubbing or, you know, his dialogue and this is so great the way he talks. And Van Cleef is one of those actors who, if you give him too much, he starts to become a uh, a bit of a uh, almost like a mockery of himself in some ways the way he talks. Yeah, I feel right. I know you're because going. he's got such a great you know he may have I've said this before but he may have my favorite face ever put to screen. His face is so amazing, especially at the beginning of uh, uh, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, something like that where he's got, he's got the dirt on him and he's eating the food and he's just got it's this kind of, yeah, yeah he's got this smirk and. He's got this like yeah, it's this mixture of like a rat and a feline face, you know. I love it, yeah. And it's just an amazing face. And he, he when he talks a lot, it, it almost is like that face softens some. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because he's got a little bit of a smile, a little bit of a smirk. I mean, he's still very menacing in this film, and I still think he he looks great considering the the hairpiece. He's so iconic, and I think too much dialogue in a way humanizes this like titan of tough guy cinema. Maybe mm-hmm. subconsciously, yeah. oh, I don't know. I like uh, because where I'm at uh, in my cinema taste, uh, I've kind of outgrown the spaghetti western, and I dig Eurocrime so much more. I, oh, I uh, just, uh, I'm just so happy to see him. Uh, you know, because he very stubbornly held on to the western when everybody else had abandoned it. Yeah. you know, all through the yeah. '70s, he was still making yeah. Italian westerns, and this is one of only three Eurocrime films he did. And, uh, yeah, I love to see him in a contemporary setting and with all that dialogue. Uh, I know what you're saying about, uh, you know, his 
all of his delivery line deliveries is just so tough uh you know it it almost it does i think it's on the the safe side of self-parody uh i don't think he ever becomes a cartoon no but, no no, uh, no yeah he uh just like so many lines are just sound tough and he has this voice that almost kind of bottoms out when he says when he speaks and stuff and uh unfortunately i grew up on all that stuff and so if ever i'm thrown an acting role i always have to resist the uh temptation to like just make every line sound tough because i yeah. i'm not sure that i can pull it off the way of being and <laughs> I, I i'm glad you mentioned that mike about his reluctance because that's one thing i always lament too is that he did that he hung around so long in the westerns way 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 after they become uh, a parody of themselves right and uh, and willingly so, but I've, I wish he had have done more than I know. The only, was, only he was such an anomaly because uh, yeah, he did a couple of comedy westerns like Bad Man's River and uh, uh, what were some of the others, uh, Captain Apache and just stuff, jokey stuff like that. But then uh, even after like the Trinity films had died off, and you know everybody had jumped ship on the spaghetti western, he went back to making dead serious spaghetti westerns until like '76. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah, I know the only other one of his I've seen, and it's a, it's got humorous moments too. It's a it's a, a interesting film. Is Mean Frank and Crazy Tony? Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of weird because uh, yeah, it, it does have comedy uh, elements, but that's yeah. it's very compartmentalized. Like Dan yes. Cleef stuff is all dead serious, and then the Tony Lo Bianco stuff is the the more humorous. That's right. Yeah, I don't I don't know why he did hang on to the western as long. I think you know I've read. I mean, you you know more about Van you would know, Mike. Was yeah. it comfort or what was it? Do you think paychecks? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I. Uh, I once tried interviewing his widow, Barbara, and uh, she was very, very reluctant. To, uh, she and I talked by phone uh, quite a bit, but she was very, very reluctant to uh, go on the record with an interview. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask her. And uh, the one time that she and I started to do an interview, she kind of just like, I'm not feeling this. So I never really got to answer all, ask my, all my questions. Hmm. I would have to think it might have been a comfort thing. I know Van Cleef... I know he was a hard-working actor in the Hollywood system and stuff, and you know I know he became a big star overseas and stuff. And I think, I mean, I mean this is just my personal opinion, but I think that maybe being that whoa, ding, you got an announcement to make there. Uh, <laughs> I think no, that, no, no, guys, I am uh, I'm finally melting your both of your hard drives. <laughs> the uh, the I think the the comfort of being the lead. And being the star of a film and all those things, I think that probably you know that probably became the thing for him. You know, well, any other, any other type of cinema, any other decade, I would tell people uh, don't don't think that these actors you know have the leeway that we think they do. Sometimes they're at the mercy of the roles being offered them. But in seventies Italy, uh, in sixties Italy, uh, most all actors told me that you know producers were just like throwing them scripts and they. You could have worked as much yeah, and, yeah. and you know as as much as they wanted basically so i do i do like to think that van cleef could have yeah yeah our uh, or segged into euro crime yeah or even i'd love to see him do like a giallo euro crime hybrid where he's like the uh the detective on the case like an adorf in um what have they done to our daughters or something mm. Mm. that's a good point all right, uh, we kind of got derailed there, but uh, you know, let me. I gotta add these. The plot keywords on IMDb: nude, murdered, nude woman murdered, sniper, throat slitting, dog race, shot in the crotch. Outstanding. <laughs> shot in the crotch. I didn't know that was a that was a keyword. <laughs> okay, I, I'm curious if we search that, how many films would come up, and how is that even a thing for? Well, 
oddly, the first two that come up are Tarantino films. <laughs> so obviously Tarantino has a thing for crotch shots uh, or getting shot in the crotch, not those kind of crotch yeah, shots. Yeah, they don't we all. Ooh, so does Larry Bishop, evidently. He's got some films on here. <laughs> Larry. A good friend. A <laughs> good friend Larry's got a few. So, yeah, somebody could stand shooting Larry in the crotch a couple times. All right. Uh, back on point, Mike. Uh, sorry. <laughs> we, where were we at? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I, we may have covered all my notes. I, um, I do like, even though it's in the notorious flabby middle, I do like the... Um, the death of John Ireland uh, oh, yeah. involving uh, a certain pet of his. Mm-hmm. Um, in I like, fact, I like uh, Ireland in the film in general. I really like John Ireland. Yeah, and the weird uh, the weird thing is that uh, I read somewhere that this film was originally intended for Stephen Boyd and James Mason. So I can only wow. imagine that James Mason was going to be the John Ireland part. But it's um, better this way. Yeah, with uh, Robert Widmark in that scene, I remember uh, he's trying to get information out of John Ireland, who's being stubborn and being loyal and not revealing it. And um, right before uh, Mr. Ireland is killed, sorry for the spoiler, um, Robert Widmark says, Benny, bastard! (laughs) And my brother at the time, my brother and I used to quote that uh, as teenagers and stuff. And so uh, when my brother went off to college, my brother used to... Like call up anytime there was like some late night TV commercial and was like send now for your free video of the Craftmatic adjustable bed and my brother would always call and says yes uh, he would give my address and say that the tape needed to be sent to Benny Bastard and, uh, <laughs> and uh, half the time they wouldn't believe him and think that they were uh, he was pulling their leg but uh, yeah I got a couple of Craftmatic uh, tapes uh, addressed to Benny Bastard that's amazing <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm going to mention something here that uh, about John Ireland. Uh, do you guys know the story of uh, the behind-the-scenes story of John Ireland? Uh, I don't know that I do. No. Well, okay, so John Ireland is one of these notorious uh, coxmen of Hollywood, uh, supposedly a, a real titan, so to speak. So every time I see him on camera, <laughs> I'm constantly looking below the waist, and I hate that because I know that. <laughs> So now I'm, I'm, I hope I, I kind of he's in Milton Berle territory. Is that the story or James Woods? Oh yeah, he's yeah. One of those no, no, characters. no. Yeah, he's he's up there with uh, the heavies, evidently. And there's some film footage where you can see. Uh, you have to Google it, but there's some film footage where you can see, and you're thinking, Jesus, what is that guy packing in there, man? A fucking microphone stand? I mean, it uh, it's obvious something was going on. So well, of uh, Van Cleef's co-stars, the one that's apparently most notorious is Forrest Tucker. Uh, oh yeah, was, uh, yeah, apparently an African bull elephant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard the same things about Forrest Tucker that uh, and that he was not afraid to like every like male co-star he was around. He would like show it to him, like he would. They would come into his dressing room, and he would always be naked, as if to say, you know, look at this fucking thing. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're not a man, I am. <laughs> so, yeah, very intimidating. Uh, not the way I'd like to meet people. But you know, no. when Will and I met at the airport, it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> but we we did that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I just like Sam. You uh, said you guys know the story of John Ireland. <laughs> Uh, the kind of thing you should be saying with a banjo in your lap, maybe. But yeah. let me tell you about the story of John. Yeah, let me tell you about the story of John Ireland, the Coxman, the Coxman. Yep. So yeah, I was uh, unfortunately I was checking that out, but outside of that though, he's got a great voice. He's got that uh, you know three packs a day whiskey voice, uh, and of course he was on a lot of great uh, TV westerns and, and a lot of great westerns anyway. I mean, he just had a great face. All together. Good Canadian boy, it should be said. Mm-hmm. Is he? Yeah. 
Yep, born in Vancouver. So yeah, he's uh, I don't. I thought he was older when he died. He's only seventy. He's seventy eight. So I thought he was older than that. He was in bad health for a long time. I think he was in that uh, late uh, late cycle Bronson Cannon film, A Messenger of Death. Oh, nice! I like that one. Yep. All right, uh, where where are we at now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, you said you went over everything, right, on your end? Yeah, yeah. Did Take you have it. anything, Sammy, or no? Uh, I got a few things. Um, I did, even though the the middle is saggy, and I agree, and I'm glad Mike, since he picked the film, was the first person to bring it up because you know Will and I are true gents, and we always worried that we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna hurt somebody's feelings a little bit when they pick a film. But uh, yeah, I, I did like the back and forth between uh, Widmark and uh, Van Cleef a little bit. I like the phone stuff. Oh, the phone scene where he comes in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that stuff. Uh, uh, is it was the twenty-one minute mark? Was that the first JMB or is that the JMB sighting? The first one? Did you have that written down, Will? Oh, shame in my game. I didn't. Oh, I think twenty-one thirty-four. I had JMB. Nice. So it's there. It's there. Definitely. Yeah. Somebody uh, like some young lady crosses frame holding it uh, first before it's ever poured or anything, and she crosses frame holding it with the label very clearly pointed towards camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a very basic story, but I I, I like how it works. I mean, uh, outside of the uh, the bits in the middle and stuff, I did like seeing Van Cleef in a modern setting. Uh, that is always nice because I am so used to seeing him with a cowboy hat. It is a nice change of pace, for or, sure. a, or a pipe, or you know something like that. Yeah. I mean, sure, as he's bored or as frustrated as you guys may have gotten with the middle, and I did too. Did you guys feel like the the climax and the final scene? Uh, kind of redeemed it or no? Absolutely. No, no, it did. It did. It was a nice, especially I thought I would have been content with either the film ending at the beach or the way it did end with that, with that wonderful freeze frame. Yes. Either way I would have been fine because either way I would have been kind of nasty. And I like that whole back end. I like everything from the beach to the very last uh, freeze frame. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote down love. And that, I mean, because I really did. Love all and it's got the, the, one of the, one of my favorite closing lines in a film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. delivered by that voice. Yes. yes, that voice, that one and only voice, which I just did an awful impression of earlier. <laughs> 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 um, but I, I like that there's some sleazy choices in here, and that the film oh, feels a little sure. nasty and ugly. And I got a little bit of a mechanic vibe, a little bit. Oh, of Oh, dude, that was one of my notes. Yeah, that, that was, was one of my hitman, notes. Hitman, the, di- the dynamic of the young upstart and the yes. uh, the veteran, yeah, which always works. I don't know why that works for me, but it really works. You know, I, I, well, I guess like the father son <clears throat> territory, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, Van Cleef did it a million times, but typically uh, they're not adversaries, or at least they don't start out adversaries. Here, they they're never partners; they're adversaries the whole time. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, because Van Cleef did a lot of that father son <clears throat> stuff. The, uh, the Death Rides a Horse and those kinds of things. And and uh, he always did it well. But, uh, yeah, I like the kind of that he's challenged in this and that he's kind of always up against the ropes a little bit with the young guy kind of coming in. And it gets yeah, into your is, code too, right? Like, yep. you know, what his code is. And the other guy, the young upstart, is really brash. And, yeah, yeah this, this is the film where I first, as a, as a teen, I saw it and it kind of solidified how great the Eurocrimes capacity for one man against the world storytelling was. Because uh, outside of John Ireland, Van Cleef can trust nobody in this film. Uh, yeah. You know, he's got the old organization coming after him. The woman he uh, loves. Yeah, the woman he loves. He's on again, off again with her, but he never trusts her. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, though the guy that gives him jobs, man, I can't even trust his fashion style. Well, yeah, I didn't know if he was supposed to be like a mafia kingpin or like a Jewish music label mogul. I didn't know what they were going. He was a dashiki at one point. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, this is like a hippie organized crime, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Damn dirty hippies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, I really did uh, enjoy that kind of dynamic to the film, and I wish there was more of the Widmark Van Cleef stuff. Yeah, in the, I like that in the middle lot. because it it would have worked uh, even great, even better. But I no, I mean I agree. I mean the ending really does amp it back up and really kind of raises that score back up because that assassination montage, kind of the setup about twenty thirty minutes in, you get the John Ireland scene. That's a really good scene. The uh, the young model uh, 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 that's hitting on Van Cleef, that stuff's all good. And then like right around that point, like I said, it kind of starts to fall apart a little bit. And just kind of hang around, and you're like, what the hell is going on? You're kind of going back to his old partner and their place. There's just weird phone conversation. I don't know what's going on there. and I mean, I know what's going on there, but it's just all kind of like, eh, I'm not interested in this. Let's get back to Van Cleef. And uh, then they finally Although there is there is that kind of uh, nice moment where uh, she's she asks her, uh, her second lover, she says, um, are you alone? Uh, they're talking telephonically. And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And she says... You are not a man. You do not satisfy me anymore. You do not. Yeah. And he looks to the guy sitting in the room with him. Is like, uh, go ahead and I'll, I'll get back to you later. That, that's a nice moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like sure. he didn't see that one coming, though. I mean, come on. Well, yeah, that. But it, it still works for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, it does work well. And I like that she, you know, you know, like the old seventies way, man. They all wore the, the when they played tennis back then. They didn't wear the support. You know, nobody wore a bra back then. And I, I have a real weakness for those uh, tennis shirts with no bra. I don't think there's a bra in the film. No. I don't think there is. Unless maybe John Ireland's got it on underneath all those clothes. <laughs> yeah, the plum smuggler, yeah. Uh, plum smuggler, fucking guy's a fucking <laughs> that's a kielbasa smuggler. Uh, but no, I, I really enjoyed this. This is the first time I've seen it. I remember you mentioned it a, while, a long time ago, uh, Mike, and I meant to get around to it. And I had acquired the film, and I just never got around to it. And uh, I'm I'm glad we got a chance to watch it. Outside of that stuff in the middle, though, I think it's a pretty solid uh, late cycle Eurocrime film, though. Yeah, and it's it's full of even the middle stuff. It's punctuated with enough. It's kind of like uh, I was I saw guys on your um, G, uh, GGTMC Facebook page talking about Fulci and uh, maybe contraband. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's. Passages of boring stuff punctuated by extremes. And yes. that's kind of the way the middle of Perfect Killer is. Yeah, there's some boring stuff, but then it'll be punctuated by, you know, a girl, girl getting shot in the vag or, uh, you know, <laughs> tranny fight with a straight razor. And <clears throat> Yeah, no, I agree. I think that it's. I'd rather it start with a bang and end with the bang than it completely peters out. You bloat its load too early, right? I'd yeah. much rather that because that's how you finish. That's what you're going to remember. Um, I'll go through a few things quickly if everyone else is done. I'm done. Yep. Uh, I love Italians loved shooting in Miami from like the late 70s to like the probably the late 80s. They loved shooting in Miami. I don't know what the Mike, do you know what the fixation was with Miami? Was there like a Florida tax break for them? Like, I mean, there's There's a lot of. uh, A couple of cities, Atlanta also. um, Atlanta in the early 80s was very, very big for the Italians. But, yeah, you're right, Miami, like a bunch of Terrence Hill kind of stuff, uh, Bud Spencer kind of stuff down in Miami. Yeah, yeah. some of the post-apocalyptic stuff. There's one of Juliana Gemma. Who was Juliana Gemma? That one we did with the boxing. What was it, uh, Sammy, with the boxing? Gemma plays like a, a mob boss, like a heavy. That's Uppercut Man. Uppercut Man with <laughs> Daniel Green. 
Yeah, right? yeah, well, yeah. yeah was. That was done in Miami, I think. But uh, they always, yeah, they always got to get the Miami stuff, you know, like the the dog racing. I'm surprised they didn't throw in like a, a was it? Uh, I, I don't even know how to say Jialai. You know that that oh. Floridian oh, highlight, right? Highlight. I'm surprised they didn't have like a highlight sequence in there, man. Um, but do they love to shoot the locales and stuff? You got to get your money, right? So uh, money's worth. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, I love the reveal with Van Cleef when he first gets pinched and it's a thing, fool me once, shame on me. Shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, I really like that. The kind of that freeze frame as he's getting taken away. He gets, the people turn around and he sees what happens and, you know, it's uh, it's really good. Um, I love Van Cleef. Uh, I do have to say he doesn't rock a trench coat as finely as Silva does, though. <laughs> yeah. He, he tries. He gives it the old college try. Um, but yeah, I like how fuzzy and funky the score is, which you mentioned. It's it's like a you know D, the D'Angelis's are my favorite brothers because they really go fuzzy, funky, and Cipriani does a really good job with that. And and this um, it's dripping with sleaze, the score. Yeah, it totally is, which is good. I mean, it certainly lends itself well to the film. I always felt like Ireland looked like a cross between Yul Brenner and Martin Balsam. Yeah, <laughs> he does have a Martin Balsam vibe going for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, we didn't mention too that the film opens with the credits over a disco ball, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Um, which is, is the only uh, only widescreen thing, and or the only letterbox <laughs> thing in the uh, prints. I'm sorry that that yeah. print is. It's not like it's not even pan and scan. It's just like they just left it. They cropped it and just cropped let it, yeah. it let it play throughout the film. And so, like, uh, there's whole scenes where. There's nothing happening on screen. Uh, there's just everything is happening in the periphery that has been cropped out, and you just get the blank negative space in between two characters. It's it's the worst video transfer. That I respect. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that, Mike. Quite all right. But this yeah, is actually this yeah. is actually the best I've ever seen the film look, though. It looks good. It looks good enough. Certainly, we, again, we've all seen more beat up Greek VHS tapes or Danish VHS tapes, so it's fine by me. Um, the disc we get disco Lee Van Cleef in this. He's got a pretty good wardrobe on the whole in this one. Um, it, I like the the club scene in this. It's not as over the top acid like an acid den as most Italian films have. Like Italian club scenes for a city or a country with so much nightlife, they always seem to have. A fixation with like hippie counterculture in the nightclubs. There's always like a zany six foot girl in like a blue afro wig walking around the clubs. It seems, but not in this. It seems more like a real disco. Um, it's another Eurocrime film and another tranny informant. Yes, <laughs> which is a great uh, a great uh, staple of the genre. There's even some moments with the the Cipriani score where it almost feels like Edda Del Orso like showed up for a few days to throw a few things down, but. Uh, one of my favorite lines in the film is, I believe, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Van Cleef to uh, Delacqua when he says, you're a killer, but you'll never make a pro. Yeah. I like that line. Um, I got to ask you guys, what tranny fight is better? This? Well, probably the well, the other one. This one started out strong, but it peters out. Um, this fight sort of has a, a glass jaw on the whole. It starts out strong. Is the tranny fight in this or Blazing Magnum? <laughs> I like I like this one just because uh, you know it brings a straight razor and uh, you know faces go through windows and it's just yeah. uh, it's just a mess. And there's you get multiple. It's kind of like a like a battle royale in a way, a little bit. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was good. Uh, Seems like there was another one we did that had a pretty great one too, but I can't remember off the top of my head. 
Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, Mike talked about the like the really sleazy, almost like, almost like a fuck off, almost like a Andrea <laughs> Bianchi kind of sleazy like badge shot. Um, you know, it's it's uh, pretty sleazy. Um, I like that. There? I like that scene a lot, though. I, I think it's, it, it's it's a horrific scene, though. Yeah. Like I think it's it's played really well. Like. You know, Even though it's got a really sleazy kind of punctuation mark on it and stuff, I like the way it's played, and I, I just like the way it's done. It's it, it's very. I mean, it, it's not as sleazy as like uh, yellow. What's that one we covered? The one with the stabbing. Oh, uh, uh, something with Milan in the title. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was a drill. Had uh, had the Blinn in it, Jeff Blinn. Yeah, had Jeff Blinn in it. He was like a a layabout who was det- who was sort of become detective overnight. Uh, yeah. G- uh, I thought it was, Naples? No, I I thought it was called like Giallo de Venice or Venice. Yeah, Giallo of Venezia. Yeah, yeah that Giallo, one. That's Giallo it. Venezia. Um, I love the the moment at the back end. It, it's it's a great line from uh, Delacqua to Tita Barker. I just uh, remember that Jeff Flynn eats boiled eggs in that film a lot. He loves hard boiled eggs in that film, man. <laughs> um, when he says to Tita Barker, he says after their beach scene, he says, "I'm not as soft as Harry. Dragging around a scorpion like you is not for me." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's a pretty appropriate line, but the film, you know, she gets she gets handled a few times in this film. You know, at the back end, it's roughy kind of moments. Um, there's even some some like a great slow mo sequence, which is kind of like a Castellari thing, where Van Cleef shows up in a convertible and destroys this beat shack, yeah. and uh, you know, Luke rolls up on the uh, the hood. And yeah, stuff. it's it's a series of shacks, and. Um even though the final shot kind of reveals that there was only one shack when he uh, crashed through that final one, which was kind of a continuity error. Uh, but yeah, it's a series of shacks, and like he's hiding behind each successive one, and Van Cleef plows through it, and then he has to hide behind the next, and Van Cleef plows through it. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Yeah, I like that. Um, and that's... Uh, oh, sorry, it's my phone. Uh, so those are all my notes. I, I don't want to reveal what the final line in the film is, because I think it, it's a spoiler, but like I'd said earlier, I really love that line. Yes, and no one. It just I missed the days, and I couldn't pull it off. But calling a woman kitten—that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Come on, kitten. Yeah, right. there it is. That's my Van Cleef again. Yeah. There he is. Not quite as good as my uh, Mafune, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say, it's not quite as bad as my Mafune. Oh, uh, uh, here, here's here's my Michael Cavanaugh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't say anything in the review, but man, that scene went on a long time. I'm sure Kavanaugh's mouth and jaw had to be hurting after that. Yeah, they had to cut like a tiny wedge out, like an orange slice, and just put it in there. That was that did not look comfortable. Oh, no, no way, man. Oof. All right. So let me see if I can. Uh, Mike's got his. Uh, you got your maker breaks and your uh, MVT. Uh, yeah, make or break. Uh, I guess would be the uh, the final shot of the film. Yeah, and, uh, that's a good one. Uh, MVT is the score. Nice. Yes. Yes. No, it's a really good one. It's one of the best scores uh, from Cipriani. He's got quite a few good ones, but that one's this one's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what's your uh, score for the film? Point was um, six point seven five. That, but that doesn't mean that I don't want you know distrib- distributors to to rush out and put this thing out. Man, I want it bad. Yeah. In a, yeah. In a proper nice. release. Know, so maybe, maybe There's some good looking stuff in the film that, that would lend itself well to a good release. Maybe if this. Well, and we have no idea what, what you know, like two thirds of, or let's say one third of what's happening on frame. We have no idea because it's all been cropped out. And that's where, like, so much of the action is very clearly happening. 
Who knows? Maybe if this final score release goes well for us, who knows? Although that was dealing with the Indonesia, which was uh, a little bit of an easier <laughs> nut to crack than Italy, <laughs> yeah. it seems. Yeah. Well, I've I've put this I put this in the ear of a number of distributors, uh, the perfect killer, and uh, I think it's one of those titles where it's just the rights are so muddy that nobody wants to take a chance on it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Um, my make or break. I really like the. Uh, I have both the ending and the assassination montage, but I'm going to go with the montage because I really like it. Uh, talk about efficient. There's a lot of yeah, efficiency going great. on there, both filmmaking and in Van Cleef's assassination. That's right. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, you know, I really like it. Um, uh, the MVT, I'm going to go with Van Cleef. I really, like seeing, I really like seeing him in this modern setting with the ascot and the, the small whiskey like glass, you know, those small whiskey cylinders they used to drink out of in the 70s, and those uh, real tall ones. Uh, I really like those, and he just—he looks great. He looks like he—he he looks like he probably smells like brute Fabergé and tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for his uh, kind of uh, flamboyant as his outfit is in most of the film, during most of the film, it's really cool that one scene where he's just in the white T-shirt, which yeah. is just like this classic tough guy look. It's yeah, uh, yeah. kind of just a nice counterpoint to how kind of dated he looks in all the other uh, fashion choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my score for the films is a little bit higher, Mike. It's a 7 out of 10. I really enjoyed Good deal. it. Good deal. And, uh, yeah, I recommend people check it out. Like we said, there is a bit of a lull in the middle, but uh, you can get past that. Yeah, maybe we should have done, like, a Cliff's Notes of what happens in the middle so that people can just watch the beginning and end. <laughs> yeah, there's just a bunch of, I think this is a bunch of plot stuff. Really, they're just trying to set up the ending that they end up with, but... The ending is such a good gut punch that I think people should definitely stick around for that 40 minutes in the middle, though, because as much as it does sag, the ending really does kind of give you the punch you need. I mean, it really just kind of ends it with a, you know, not, not so much with a bang, but with a smile on my face. I really enjoyed the ending. Kind of a little bit of a killer's vibe or the killing vibe, a little bit of kind of that uh, poetic justice type vibe. I just, I don't know. I really dug it. So, well, anyone who like, watches Hong Kong film, this formula of great opening, saggy metal, Amazing yeah. closing is very familiar to them, certainly. Yeah. If anybody's uh, ever seen my body, then it's something the same way. I got, I, got a, I got a pretty good face, a pretty saggy middle, and my feet are really nice. There you go, man. <laughs> the old Manny Petty tandem. Yeah, and if you go the other way, it you know, still works out that way, see? So if you go great opening? <laughs> I don't want to know about the great opening. <laughs> I got a great opening. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I hear John Ireland's middle drag a little. <laughs> yeah, I bet it would, man. He's yeah. way down. He's what gave me the great opening. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't great at the time, let me tell no, you. No, no. It was like one of his film credits, man. It was like Red River. You know what I'm saying? That's right, man. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, my make or break is actually the opening. Uh, the opening of the film, not Sammy's opening. Uh, although I'm sure that's fine as well. Uh, I just really love the opening. You, would, think you I, would know. Yes, exactly. I do feel like we're probably a bit harsh on the middle considering how strong the opening is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like it's really, really a fun, fun opening. And like you said, you I think, start to I think though with Eurocrime films like Meet Him and Die, I think like with the like when we did that recently, the in the middle of that is kind of punchy though. You know, you got the chase. Uh, that's what I mean. I feel like the genre on the whole is usually pretty punchy start to finish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it falls outside of that a little bit for me. But again, it's really minor quibble. Opening my MVT is the sleaze. I liked how sleazy this was. I yeah. think when you get sleaze and you get hard men 
doing and then no pun intended you got hard <laughs> men doing sleaze yeah i think it goes to show kind of all bets are off and if a woman can get like assassinated while she's nude and you're getting like a big tranny fight and you're getting all these things that anything can happen with men that have no code like you see with luke in this so what'd you say I, hard men that what what Hard men, uh, hard men and sleaze. Yeah, hard men and sleaze. That's our new tagline for the show. That's right. Hard men and sleaze. GGTMC. Hard men and sleaze. <laughs> That's right. Uh, my score is just a little bit lower than your guys. It's a six point five. Um, yeah, but even still, I would like to see this get a release. I think it's fun for people. You see, you know, an icon of, of Western cinema leaving a cleave, having fun. Uh, I would say letting his hair down, but more like putting his hair on. <laughs> yeah. um, really having fun with it. Uh, get to see him, you know, stretch his legs a bit with some dialogue. Get a romantic subplot. Um, it just, yeah, cool little film that that uh, you know was off and is off the beaten path. Hopefully, some people will seek it out now. Yeah, I think especially if you're a fan of Van Cleef, because there's some great Van Cleef moments in here. I'm actually going to say six, seven, five as well. Yeah. You know, I was in the same ballpark as you guys, that, that 6.5 to 6.75, but that ending really just kind of pushed it up to 7 for me. Yeah, it wasn't that. That left me with a smile on my face, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely tell airport security was different back in the day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there wasn't even like a like a bowling bag that he had beside his like his legs. It was just like he brought that thing in the front door. I know. I was like, where did he, where'd he pull it from? I mean, he just pulls it out, man. Talk about, damn. Yeah, I think, I think he and Lee Harvey actually walked in together carrying <laughs> in their bags of curtain rods. Uh, That's right. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Like about uh, great openings. Mm-hmm. All right, so that is the show for this week, Mike. We want to thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, Hopefully, it won't you. be three years again. We know it you're going to be, be. Yeah, we, we know you're going to be very busy over the next couple of years. But well, uh, it depends. All depends on uh, what you guys find happened with your computer today, because I may have uh, <laughs> you know, planted if something. It melts this no. afternoon. I read the wavelengths. I recorded everything, and outside of one little slip in the Star Trek into garbage moment, uh, everything's everything's okay. <laughs> Do I need to retake that? Okay, here we go. A clean copy. Star Trek into garbage. <laughs> it's, it's fun. Yes. But, uh, no, we again, we, we love having you on. And uh, last time you yeah, were on, I wasn't able to be on, and I was pretty sad about it. So, yeah, it's great. It's always great having you on. So, And we wish you nothing but the best on the uh, the projects you're working on. Oh, likewise, of course, guys. It's it's nice to see, Mike, as we've said, you know, behind the scenes, someone like you fighting the good fight for things that we're all so passionate about. It's it's really uh, inspiring to people like us to see you doing what you do. So please you know, keep the doing it. The entertainment industry rewards people who just go with the flow. And uh, I'm, like I said, at the Atlanta Film Festival on a panel, I'm not into movies. I'm into tough guy movies. And <laughs> yeah, so I kind go. of uh, penalize myself by limiting what I want to work on. But, you know. That's what I'm doing. The heart wants what it wants. Yes. The hard men want the sleaze. Hard men yeah. want the sleaze. <laughs> the goat is the sidekick. That's right. Yeah, and no, we'll definitely have to get you on, Mike. Maybe we'll, uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, getting you in, because I don't think you're super, super familiar with, uh, outside of some of the really staples of the genre, some of the Hong Kong stuff of the uh, late 70s and early 80s, right? Yeah, I think I've seen The Killer and Hard Boiled, and that's and about it. There's a few I wouldn't mind throwing at you, like uh, Long Arm of the Law, which I don't know if Sammy's seen. It's got an amazing shootout in the walled city of Kowloon at the back end that I think you'll like. It It, it, it's, it pre- precedes a lot of that heroic bloodshed kind of stuff, like uh, Hard Weld and stuff. So. Yeah. yeah. We'll take Mike out of his comfort zone. Bring him back on, take him out of his comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> Give him a Roman porno. <laughs> and a... <laughs> Or maybe not. Maybe maybe secretly that is his comfort zone. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who 
knows? But uh, yeah, what are we doing next week, Will? Do we know? We are. I'm going to tell you right now what I'm doing. Okay. You need to think of something. You better think about it. No, I, I, I got something. I got something. I got something on the DVR that I've been promising since year number one of the show. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, my film was one that I discovered maybe three or four months ago, and uh, I had to see it. It's made by Chilean surrealist filmmaker Raul Ruiz. It's a film called City of Pirates. <laughs> nice. I love the title. This is, and there's no pirates. <laughs> Uh, this is a film that um, it's on YouTube. I checked for those that want to play along. Nice. It's got subtitles. You have to turn them on through the closed caption feature. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about it. It's a film that isn't for everyone. It's it's very dense and surreal. But um, I think I, I really wanted to kind of get outside our comfort, not so much comfort zone, but comfort food. We tend to do a lot of tough guy films as well. And I wanted to kind of just throw a real curveball in there. And, is that from 1983? 1983. Nice. Love the title. La Vie des Pirates. That's it. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, you came out of nowhere with that one for me. You dropped that one on me. I didn't see that one coming. Dropped the ham through the glass table, yo. Yeah, you did. Um, and I'm going to pick, uh, we've talked about this for years. Uh, a long time ago, Paul Newman passed away, as we all know. Oh, and nice. we promised a Paul Newman uh, double feature, which we never did. So a while back, I recorded Slapshot off of uh, TV uh, a movie channel in HD, and I've been wanting to revisit it for a long time. It's hockey playoff time for those who I was going to say hockey. how fitting yeah. for us puckheads. Yeah, and uh, but I just want to talk about the film because I think it's an interesting film to talk about, especially what it kind of the influence it had on cinema. So uh, yeah, so we'll be doing slap shots. So we'll be doing city of city, the city of lost slap shots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> slap pirates, which sounds yeah. kind of disgusting. And <laughs> Mike's already came up with the title for this one. So yes, he did. Because at first I thought, hey, Mike, it looks also by the way, it looks like Gobbles the Crazy Goat uh, is getting a little bit of uh, mileage on the GGTMC group. Oh yeah, yeah. People chiming in, they remember it too. Yeah, Robin Boogie from uh, Cinema Sewer, he remembers. Hold on, a goat that eats. And uh, you know, I remember the commercials for that. And uh, Todd, a good friend, Todd, he says he eats crazy. And yeah, it looks like people people are liking it and everything, man. So I guess more people had it than we thought. <laughs> So nice. That's cool. Yeah, I, I, commercials, I, I don't remember. Uh, again, you're the, the first outside contact I've had with Gobbles the Goat that uh, can confirm it wasn't like some prototype that my brother and I ended up with. <laughs> like, a, like an albino goat that he takes on. It's a prototype. Yeah. Well, Doggy Doo is a lot like that, except it has excrement. So. It's the age we're in, the age of vulgarity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's always kind of been that kind of stuff in kids' stuff, yeah. though. I mean, sure. I grew up that way. I mean, yeah, no, the uh, the new <clears throat> version of Operation. Uh, now you eviscerate the patient, and you're pulling out viscera and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. it's, uh, yeah. totally different. Lucy, Lucio Fulci's Operation. The Fulci estate uh, <laughs> yeah. quarterbacked that release. They, they 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 had to do some quality control though, because the amount of fog coming out of that machine. Well, you you, well, the thing is, you got to keep running the water into the mister up the sides of the thing, and yeah. it's just a bit yeah. of a nightmare logistically. <laughs> yeah, the amount of fog, man. Kids, kids were claiming, you know, some serrated lungs. So, <laughs> all right. So that is the big show, everybody. We'll see you next week, Mike. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah. and with that, I'll say adios. 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 Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com 